This is Black Tuesday, the people who lived through the Great Depression. But I want to know what's going on with Trump going to fucking jail. I'm gonna know. Police arresting George Santos. <laughs> nice. Folks. Introducing the filter sorb. Hold My goodness, guys, the Folks. saga continues. When it comes to that incredible yes. liar from Long Island, <laughs> it just keeps on getting worse. And for three big reasons above all. One, on more and more witnesses of his crimes, more and more people that suffered at the hand of Santos continue to come forward. Wow. And what they bring are not only stories that are damaging to his character, if he had any character at all, damaging to his he reputation, don't. again, whatever's left of it, but also sheds contextual light on all of the criminal investigations mm. bearing down upon him. In addition to the fact that we have more details around Santos's lies regarding his treasurer, did he get a new one, did his first one quit, what the hell's happening there, and also at the same time, new analysis of the donor list showing that many of his Russia. top donors are likely entirely Mother fake, Russia. aka they don't, they don't exist, which means more evidence of donor fraud. Before we get to the main portion of this video, which is a shocking announcement from the DOJ, from Merrick Garland, from FBI, from federal officials, making a historic move against George Santos this morning, waking this SOV up from his slumber nice. and making it clear nice. they are making historic moves against this idiot congressman. The biggest step towards an orange jumpsuit we've seen oh, yet. Fucker. And the cops, they're busting down. Yeah. was charged with embezzlement. Uh, so he has oh, obviously shit. been accused of bad doing. But, you know, Pedro, the point... Oh, shit. Oh, oh man. Just, uh... How can he do that to us? Just, uh... The point is, some of these lies were so minor and so specific. I mean, the volleyball one, right? <laughs> Not just saying that he played volleyball, but he had a scholarship, that he slayed teams from Harvard and Yale, that he was the smallest player on the team, that he needed to get two knee replacements. I mean, you know, he went deep with the lies. Why does he do this? I don't know. I think he's just out of his mind. The And now that everybody found out, like, Stuff. When we were together, he never used to do anything. 
So, uh, Mr. Federico, what do you say? Are you surprised he's now a member of Congress? I mean, is, is it, <laughs> yeah. That, was, that, was that an ambition that he had? Uh, what he always uh, looked for was fame and power. That's all the all he cared about, and he got it. He got the fame of the lies, and he got the power that he's in Congress now. But it's uh, I, he shouldn't be there. That we start there with that move from his ex-boyfriend to talk about this. And you know, a lot of this stuff is personal, but it's important. One, how you treat the closest people in your life. If you treat them badly, you're probably going to treat constituents and strangers even worse without even less of a bearing of human decency. But also, what they point out is the way in which Santos lies, how he lies so effortlessly. Doesn't mean he's a good liar necessarily. Uh, he has gotten away with it for a oh, time, yeah, but it means he lies so effortlessly, so deftly. He, he switches from being genuine and nice and sincere and, uh, to a monstrous liar on a dime. And what that demonstrates is exactly what we're seeing. And so in that clip, you get a sense for how he can cause so much harm. And you better believe that whether it's in the investigations from Brazil or from the United States, these personal people hurt in personal ways by George Santos will be evidence in criminal trials, even ones based on technical matters. Because again, when you're building a case for a jury, there's the nuts and bolts, of course, but there's also, as we know, the, the, the emotions of it and the, the context of it. And George Santos's lies about donor, donors and where his money's coming from and to the FTC and all of that are not in a vacuum. They're part of a personal pattern. And speaking of which, we have more updates on this treasurer mess as well as some breaking reporting on his donor list potentially being fabricated. Well, at exactly this hour last night, when we began this program with the news that George Anthony DeVolver Santos nice. did not accept an invitation to a White House reception for all new members of Congress uh, in both parties, probably because the White House actually checked ID and does a background check of every visitor, we now know exactly where Congressman DeVolver Santos was when we were delivering that report, along with the breaking news last night that the person listed as the new treasurer of the Santos campaign released a statement saying that a new campaign finance filing by George Anthony DeVolder Santos was not signed by the person whose electronic signature appears on the document. Republican Thomas Stadtweiler has served as a treasurer on many Republican campaigns, issued a written statement saying that the new campaign finance document bearing his electronic signature is completely wrong. He did not authorize the Santos campaign to use his signature, and he does not vouch for any of the information in that new campaign filing which yeah. changes the description of $700,000 sure. that flowed into the campaign. The campaign's original claim was that that money came from the candidate's personal funds. The new filing simply unchecks the box, <laughs> saying personal funds, and does not reveal where the money came from. Russia. For 99% of politicians, Mother that Russia. news, breaking last night, would have been the very worst news of their lives as politicians. <laughs> it would have been the darkest moment of their lives as politicians for 99% yeah. of politicians who have it. never lied about where they went to school 
or where they worked, oh, or randomly thrown someone's gaming. electronic signature onto their it's campaign finance off, filings, which seems to indicate a possible $700,000 campaign finance crime. Most politicians never come close to a scandal moment that George Anthony DeVolder Sandoz found himself in at exactly this time, this very minute uh -huh. last night. Most yeah. politicians yeah. are nowhere to be found when they are in this way, when they're this far down the deep hole of scandal and possible crime that has state yeah. and federal prosecutors closing in country, on. Stupid asshole. But Go we know ahead, exactly try. where George Santos was last night. Go back to Brazil. At this very minute. Try to. When I was revealing the latest elements of what may be his campaign finance crime. He was out on the town in Washington, D.C. You would think by now that George Santos might take a certain pleasure in wearing an N95 mask, even if he thinks he's not at risk of COVID-19, but just to make it that much harder to recognize him out there in the world, you would think by now that George Santos might have obtained another pair of glasses so that he wouldn't have to go out there in the world wearing his unmistakable trademark eyeglasses. Fucking have a At this time He's last night, he was in a place where most people don't look like they just came from the office. Most people are very casually dressed there. But George Anthony DeVolder Santos, proving once again that he desperately craves and pathologically thrives on the attention he is now getting, went to a karaoke bar in Washington. Don't buy solar panels. Seriously. There is a very good reason why we're saying this. If you're thinking about buying solar panels, getting recognized all over the place. In DC. And he went dressed as George Santos. So you can see there, right? We got more info. Right? And this is where the police are starting to perk up. We're gonna to get to that. But what we see there is continued confusion about his treasurer. And the reason this is happening is that the treasurer is often the person alongside the candidate that bears the personal, legal, financial responsibility for the accuracy of the statements yeah. of money Had going in and coming out, charge. where it's coming so, from, of a campaign. And if that information is wrong, there could be fines, there could be punishments, and the punishment could be criminal if the, the, the information isn't simply erroneous, but, but actively fabricated. And there's always going to be a question, well, was Santos's treasurer in on the fraud, or are they innocent in the sense that, yeah, the information they produced is false, but only because Santos was lying to them. And, you know, Santos is feeding them inaccurate donor slips and saying the money is coming from a, a, a personal loan, but it's actually coming from a shadow loan and the treasurer doesn't know, then the, obviously they shouldn't be held criminally liable for them being lied to. But at this stage, all of that is up in the air. And Mother Jones, as you see up here, just did a, a, a deep dive into Santos's top donors and they tried calling like a dozen of them and many of those people do not seem to exist. They couldn't reach them, which is understandable. If I gave money to George Santos, I'd be burying my head in the sand right now. <laughs> the crime, but, but, but in particular, like it shows that maybe these people are fake. And if these people are fake, mm -hmm. it again raises the and question, the where did the money actually come yeah. from? Russia. Who is giving this money? Hello. Was Santos making additional Russia. fake donations to get around campaign finance limits? 
Maybe. Was he getting money from foreign nationals who aren't allowed yep. to donate, but wanted go. to so they could influence this congressman? So they created fake Americans, you know, and trying to, you know, give big donor amounts to, from those people under the, the assumption that no one would ever look into individual donations. So you create a quote-unquote Joe Smith person, have him give you a thousand bucks or whatever, but in reality that money's coming from somebody abroad or somebody who's already made a max donation or somebody who doesn't want to be seen giving you money. Whatever the reason, the point is this man is a mess. And this is where the legal troubles go from 7, 8, wherever they were out of 10 to like 15 out of 10. Because it was just announced from the DOJ, FBI, from Garland, that they're asking the FEC to slow down. And the reason they're doing this is that they are launching a quicker criminal investigation than anyone, especially George Santos, thought it says here. The Department of Justice asked the FEC to hold off on any enforcement action aimed at George Santos while it conducts its criminal probe, reported the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. It cited two people familiar with the request from the DOJ and noted that the move is the, the clearest sign to date that federal prosecutors are examining Santos' campaign finances. The Justice Department request also asked that the FEC provide any relevant documentation to the Justice Department according to the knowledgeable people who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Santos has been under scrutiny for financial disclosures, including self-funding his campaigns despite apparently being unable to pay his own rent. He's under investigation <laughs> by both federal and local authorities. And also, all of this demonstrates, guys, how big of trouble he's in. Again, the FEC has the ability to bring criminal matters forward at times, but mostly they deal with financial penalties. If you lie or you get donations incorrectly, they'll claw back the money, they'll fine you, all of those sorts of things. It's a big deal, but it doesn't always lead to criminal charges. What this is showing is Garland and the DOJ have gone to the FEC and said, look, you can do your work, but don't bring any penalties on this guy yet because we need to focus on taking him down criminally before that. So we need to work really hard on that. Slow down. Give us what you got. We're dragging this Sophie out of bed in the morning, and we're going to take him down first. That's bad news. A historic announcement, historic bad news for Santos. New breaking scientific research shows that there's a common vegetable that spikes diabetes Did they really get him out of bed? That's what I want to know. Final move? I mean, final move. Secrets of ancient history. Wow. Forbidden knowledge, secrets of ancient history. And Matthew Lacroix. Actually, I might have listened to this before. Matthew LaCroix here. I'm joined by Billy Carson for an epic mastermind discussion and presentation on civilizations, human origins, and forbidden knowledge. 
So today we're going to be doing something special, where Billy and I are going to be dual reading the Enuma Elish and the Emerald Tablet, so we can understand the secrets of the past. Billy, what have you been up to and how are you, my friend? Oh, first of all, thanks for having me back on. It's been a long time since we've done this, and I'm really excited about it. I was really looking forward to it, and I'm glad everything worked out with the weather so that we can make this connection. Um, now, since we last uh, did a video, I've been all over the world. I've probably been around the world twice now <clears throat> in the last uh, two years. Uh, it's just been amazing. I mean, everywhere from Cambodia, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea, <laughs> Vietnam, uh, you know, uh, I've been to Accra City in Greece to go to an ancient dig site. Um, you know, I've been, I've just been about everywhere, Peru, the National Lines, uh, Machu Picchu, um, the Sacred Valley. All in Tumbo, Sacramento. I mean, you can just keep going on and on. I've been to a lot of places, and what's happened is I've really, uh, you know, dug into the field research kind of firsthand, uh, and went and talked to a lot of homegrown archaeologists, a lot of uh, uh, homegrown researchers that have grown up in the area, so that I can get a little bit of information about what's really gone on and what they think happened. And it always comes to the same thing. A lot of people are always saying, the people that live there, grew up there, know the tradition, always say the same thing, that these weren't built by us, they were built by the guards. It's really amazing. I mean, you know, um, so it's just been an amazing journey, man, and I'm so happy to be able to even, uh, you know, get write the book, put the book out, it's doing phenomenal. Your book is phenomenal right here. I really appreciate this book, man. I just started digging into it. It's so amazing how similar know, our points of view are and everything and, and reference to the ancient past and ancient history and the amount of, re I respect you for the amount of research that you've done. People don't realize what it takes to be able to put this kind of information out and this level of quality. You really have to be a student of, of the mysteries and a student of, of the uh, ancient history. So I appreciate it, man. Thank you. That's really hey, Billy, it's an honor. I, I really, um, it's amazing to hear those kind words from you, especially coming from someone of, of your um, importance. You know, I'm, it really is an honor. I have not had a chance to travel quite as much as Billy. I say I'm jealous is an understatement, I think. Um, hopefully someday I can get there. Okay, Billy and I are going to jump in now into some slides, and we're going to review some evidence in chronological order. And we're going to start by trying to understand where human civilizations came from. You know, a lot of times I meet people who they're sitting down, they're pondering outside, and they're wondering, you know, where do we come from? Where do human civilizations come from? Where does knowledge, mathematics, laws, where do all where does all that stuff come from? And they and they honestly like asking that question because they don't know. And of course, if you go and you go through the um, the education system we have in school, you you're taught that human civilization is six thousand years old or less, and that everything developed in Mesopotamia which is true, except for the age is wrong and where it came from is wrong. And what I mean by wrong, is, I know that's a pretty um, blunt statement, but we have evidence that tells us where it came from. So we don't have to guess anymore. So many people aren't aware of this information. I think that's one of those things that, that we're trying to correct now, and, and Billy and I are doing this work, is that we're trying to point out and say, hey, look, we have evidence that directly tells us where all these things, these things came from, tells us who we really are tells us this lost history, and we're now at the point where we're trying to put those pieces together to understand it. And so what, what, what I'm showing the screen right now, this is what is known as heritage. Now, if you wanted to try to find out, if you, if you ask yourself, well, 
what is the evidence that tells us where any of this stuff came from? What, what is, where is it? And where does it come from? Because I, I, don't, I don't really believe this stuff. So, some of this information seems way too far-fetched. You know, it really goes against this doctrine we're told. So provide us some concrete evidence. Well, that evidence comes from four places. And Billy can chime in as we're going here, and we discussed it. And I've, I've categorized four cuneiform tablets that provide concrete evidence for all of those questions that I just asked. And those four tablets are the Eridu Genesis, the Sumerian Kinglet, the Code of Hammurabi, and the Legend of Atanya. And each of those cuneiform tablets specifically describes where all of those moral laws and codes and mathematics and astronomy, it tells where all that, that stuff came from. And on top of that, the Sumerians clearly state that in, in many other places as well, including cylinder seals, they show that. Okay? And so I want to just provide you a quick little quote, and I'm, Billy is going to be very familiar with this, that, that is opening line of the Sumerian kinglet. Okay? And what it says is, when kingship was lowered from heaven, kingship was an eridu. Hey, Billy? Absolutely, and that's huge because that gives us an idea of where the very first city was here on Earth uh, and uh, where, they, where these kings or these gods, quote-unquote, kind of kick-started civilization here. Uh, I really think it was like a breakaway civilization from their planet to here. And that's one of, the, that's one of these great mysteries that still remains is, you know, where if, if all this knowledge was handed down and given, first, the first question, of course, is where did it come from? And who provided it, right? And those, and those questions then lead to asking even more questions that go deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole, trying to figure out where, where the origins of everything come from. Now, I wanted, to, I wanted to point out something, is that some people have looked at the Sumerian king list and they said, okay, that stuff seems, sounds like a fairy tale, it can't be real. So the way that you can and know that something like the Sumerian king list is authentic is to then compare the information that in it with another cuneiform tablet. Now, I want to mention that, I've, and I've mentioned this before in other shows, some of these tablets came from completely different locations, sometimes you know, hundreds of miles away. So to have information be carried over shows you that, number one, the information is probably true, and number two, it's most likely come from a civilization that was connected. And so where that comes from, that, that we can find that same information, is the area of Genesis. And that is one of these cuneiform tablets that I think is largely unknown and, and, and discussed very little. And I have the full translation from, including the Eridu Genesis, in, in the stage of time. Because that's how important this is, in my opinion. So what the Eridu Genesis states, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs. Because, again, I want you to notice those terms. The terms I want you to look for are, when you read the Sumerian Kinglet, it mentions these certain cities in chronological order that were founded. Okay, it says Eridu was the first city on Earth. Then it says that Bad Tabira was the second city, followed by the Rock, Sippar, and then finally Sharupak. Now, it's, what's important to understand about that is that Sharupak is mentioned in these tablets as being the last city in Mesopotamia before it was all destroyed and everything had to start over again. Okay, so what the Eridu Genesis says is it starts by saying. When the royal scepter was coming down from heaven, the august crown and the royal throne being already down from heaven, the king regularly performed to perfection the august divine services and offices, and laid the bricks of those cities in pure spots. The firstling of the cities, Eridu, he gave to the leader Nunamud. The second, Bad Tabira, he gave to the prince and the sacred one. The third, Larak, 
she gave to Palestine. The fourth, Sippar, she gave to the gallant Utu. The fifth, to Rupak, she gave to Ansar. So, not only does it, it's not like it mentions one of those cities or another one of those cities, every single one is exactly mentioned in the order that the Sumerian king was set. Mm-hmm. Now, and I want Billy to chime in after this, what's important about that is if you add up the dates given for what they call shars, when they listed out the reigns of these kings that ruled these cities, you get a history. We go back 200,000 years ago. And I know that would throw a wrench in everything we've ever been taught, especially when you look at how we're told in school that human civilization is less than 6,000 years old. So basically, Billy, this paints an entirely different picture about our past, doesn't it? Uh, this is incredible because it shatters our religious systems literally in one second. <laughs> and uh, this is why this information is not taught in schools because obviously the religious systems are a multi-trillion dollar industry and they can't have people uh, just going into this ancient information and learning it and bypassing that system. But um, this is really earth-setting information, the fact that you can discover this information on two different stone tablets. And one thing I really want to point out, not the fact that they're so far apart, but the fact that somebody took the time to etch these into clay with a cuneiform stylus. I don't know if anybody's ever watched it being done, but I have. Uh, as, uh, there's a professor you know, at the uh, Cambridge uh, Library, uh, and he does these. Uh, and he has a YouTube channel where he shows you how to do it. And let me tell you something. The British Museum, there's also uh, Mr. Finkel, who does it as well. Does an excellent job showing how to do the cuneiform device and cuneiform into some wet clay. It's such a tedious process. And you're thinking, tens of thousands of years ago, somebody's got to sit down, get the clay out, get a stylus out, and take so many hours upon hours to create this information, and then bake it and so forth, so it can stand withstand the test of time. They didn't have time to do this for fun. This wasn't just like, I'm going to sit down and make a whole cuneiform tablet today just for the heck of it and make up some information. <laughs> they really took down important uh, information to these tablets, things they thought would be prudent for future generations to see. Exactly. And, and it's not even just that they wanted, you know, these specific stories to be known because, oh, this was just an event that occurred. They were so smart that these stories that they created were written in such a way that it's like perfect harmonic rhythm. And, it, and it, at the same time, while they described both actual events that occurred in the past and this important symbolism and all these metaphors and these lessons that we can learn along the way, but they provide a complete glimpse and this lost viewpoint into where human origins came from and where it all began in the, ver- in the, in the very first place. I mean, try to imagine over 50,000 years ago. Try to imagine, I mean, think of everything that human civilization has accomplished in the last 500 years. Now try to imagine more than 50,000 years ago. These civilizations that are all being handed this information and they're rising up and agriculture is blossoming all around the planet and you're seeing this emergence of human civilization that's spreading out around the planet. And then what happens? Well, it reaches a certain, certain sophistication and then it's wiped out and destroyed. And then human civilization has to rebuild itself again. Now, when I mentioned those no four tablets that, are, that, that I said are crucial, I didn't read anything from the last two that I mentioned, but I want to bring it up. How do you know that these events occurred? Like, how do we know these what I just mentioned, Eridu and, and Sharupak, how do we know those cities were from that far ago, right? How do we know how old they are? How do we know 
how to accurately create this timeline. You basically have to look at evidence from a large spectrum of, of, of um, our area to understand. And the first thing you want to look at is you compare things like geologic evidence you get from around the world, looking at, oh my god, the landscape was disastrously scarred by these events that occurred the last ice age. And then you look at things like ice core samples and you can pinpoint when these different climatic zones occurred. And then you can take these ancient cuneiform stories and then match them up based on the events they describe and how old they say they are. So when the Sumerian king list and, um, and, the, and the Eridu Genesis talk about these ancient cities, you, people are then going to say, well, how do we distinguish what's before and what's after? Here's where really paying attention to this stuff comes in, that comes in important. And you look at something like the legend of Atanya. And here's, yet again, another one of these incredibly important tablets that I hear almost nobody talk about. Okay? And that is remarkable because the legend of Atanya is the only tablet good, that talks about the events that occurred. Just putting my birdies to bed. All right. <laughs> Excellent. All solar. Nice. That's right. the way to go. Yeah, I think, uh, well, will they last a couple years? Huh? Like, maybe last a couple years or what? Oh, yeah, well. I'm going to go apply with them like this so they, they see everything. Uh -huh. And then uh, they top off, you know, like, you got a what? Oops, shit. Oh man, fucking blew it. Back on the fence. Oh man. Getting a degree at ASU is a journey that can take you anywhere. Right after the flood. It specifically mentions that there was a city in Mesopotamia that was then created, the first one of all. So you could call Eridu the first city in human civilization ever, according to these records. And the first city the after word, everything was destroyed is called Kish. And Kish is what was known as these post-Diluvian um, civilizations, okay? And that's, that means that everything we know of, when we think of... Um, all these things re-handed re down and then civilization restarting in Mesopotamia like we're told in school. That's all part of this post-Diluvian history. This is all part of this new epic that occurred with this restarting of human civilization over again. And that's why these time periods are so confused, wouldn't you say, Billy? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's so it gets a little convoluted, so you really got to pay attention. And I'm glad you brought up the ice cores. Um, you know, there's a show by Greg Braden, the famous Greg Braden, uh, great guy. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him and being in some episodes with him on a few shows. He's on a show called Missing Links. Uh, it's on Gaia. He talks about the, the, that entire first episode on season one is all about the ice core samples. Taking mm. into the ice cores, matching it up, like you just said, ancient history and events, global events that have happened, and you get the record stored in the ice core. You can detect when we've had global warming in the past, and then you begin to see this cycle that it happens every so many thousands of years. 
begin to see the cycle of every so many thousand years you get an ice age. You begin to see the cycle of every so many thousand years you get some type of a geological disaster that happens on the planet. You can see the different oxygen levels, different atmospheric gases, uh, the plant life. All that information is in the ice core. So, I mean, literally, when you study these ice cores, you can now then predict the future of the planet. And to be honest with you, a lot of people are really getting worried about the global warming and everything else. We're right on track with the ice core said we were going to be exactly right now. This is not something, to be honest with you, out of the ordinary. It's actually something that's part of our cyclical, cyclical nature of this um, geological pattern on this planet. Uh, and but, but the amazing thing is those ice cores line up with these ancient tablets. Which is why I talk about the fact that I really believe that the Great Sphinx and the Great Pyramid are probably about 36,000 years old. Because if you go back two additional processional periods to match up the the, uh, the Sphinx with the constellation of Leo, you end up around 36,000 years ago. And according to the ice cores and according to the animal tablets, it's the perfect time to build the Giza Plateau to build the Great Pyramid. So it kind of really gives you, it helps you paint a, a, a good picture about what's going on. And the other thing is, like you said, finding these tablets all around the world. Chief Joseph, which was a Native American Indian that was unburied in North America, was unburied from a, a, a burial tomb in North America, and what was in his pocket? A Sumerian tablet written in cuneiform text. So the Sumerians had contact with Native American, indigenous Native Americans, thousands of years ago in the North Americas, proving again that they had traveled the entire globe. They also found in, uh, in Mesoamerica, Sumerian uh, writing, which they call Proto-Sumerian, but it's even on Wikipedia, I mean, anybody can look it up. They even had a metric system back then. So when I tell people about uh, the fact that the Grand Gallery and the Great Pyramid, the longitude of the number's mass and speed of light is by a second. Huh? Look at your have meters back then. Oh, yes, we did. <laughs> we had meters thousands of years ago. Everything we have now is just rediscovered. Exactly. That's really well said. And we're going to be getting into some of those some of those pieces of evidence from other parts of the world that prove that there was a global civilization and global connection. Huh? Yes, we're going through another one of these time periods. Get this cyclical nature time period. Don't allow media to distract you and, and, and confuse you over what's going on right now. Oh, this warming that's occurring on the earth, completely just human induced, nothing to worry about. We're just going to fix things up, cool things down. We're, we'll be all set. Except for the fact that we're right in line with another one of these cycles that I think is based on solar cycles. Um, that occur where you get extreme warming and then and then a period of extreme cooling over and over and over again. And in between each one of those events, you get a disaster. Now, how big that disaster is going to be, it depends on a lot of factors, especially if you have an ice age. And that's why 
don't I want to both remind people that that's why this important is this this information is so important to learn right now because we're in this window where where we have all of this available to us and we don't know how long that window is going to be and secondly thankfully this is the part where I pull the positive direction um, on this discussion is that we don't have an ice age right now and that's something that a lot of people gets past and they say oh my god these events that occurred back then going to be just as bad right now well they cut they, they sort of can't be because without that ice age and having one to two miles of ice above where i'm sitting right now you're not going to have that massive outburst of water that flooded which is what was one of the major components i believe behind what they describe as being the great deluge now i do think there is um earthquake and and um volcanic activity that occurs as well and i'm not going to um poo poo the idea that we're, we're not going to have challenges that are going to be coming up in our future we just have to understand and, and really look back at these events in history and then learn from them and try to figure out if we're going to go the same route that these ancient civilizations did and disappear or if we're going to be able to stand the test of time and our civilization is going to continue and so that's why we're at a crossroads right now because we need to understand that Maya, the Aztec, the Hopi, the Hindu, the Cherokee, and then many, many other ancient cultures around the world, it clearly states in their, in their ancient writings and between, in, in their stories, they say that, that human civilization today, is, this is either the third or the fourth epic that, that we've had in our past. That means that human civilizations have gone through these cycles of rising up and then being destroyed over and over again. And we're at the third or fourth of those time periods. And that's pretty mind-blowing to, to wrap your head around and consider, I think, Billy, don't you? Oh, absolutely. It tells you that we're in a grand cycle, just like the uh, the Indians talk about the Native, you know, not the Native American Indians, but the Indians in the East, when they're talking about these grand cycles of the Yugas, the rise and fall of civilizations. Uh, and, you know, uh, the nature of this universe is cyclical. And the rise and fall of civilizations is cyclical. When Thoth talks about this in the Emerald Tablets, we talked about the fact that he's actually traveled to other planets to watch civilizations rise and fall. So we're not the only ones that go through this situation. According to Thoth, it happens all throughout the entire universe. Civilizations have this cyclical nature to them where they rise and fall. So we're not, you know, we're not the exception. Same thing happens here. Uh, and we're living, you brought up a very good point, we're living in a very small window. Uh, of opportunity here where we're able to uh, enjoy this planet, enjoy the beauty of nature, to flourish, uh, to, and, and, and really it's a shame when you see this tiny, when you can really understand how small this window is, it's, it's, it's smaller than a blink of an eye, it's quicker than a blink of an eye. Geologically time-wise, yeah. Geologically time-wise, yeah. So we're here and we're battling each other and fighting each other and we're pulling each other apart. We should be spending this little bit of precious time that we have to love each other to have a show unconditional love to your brother and your sister, to unite, to make, you know, and maybe even to find a way if we join up to break this cycle or maybe, uh, you know, travel the stars and do things that we have an opportunity to do while we have this window of opportunity here before the next geological disaster. And it's not, a, not to be negative, it's just that it's just part of life. It's like you, your avatar body is born and it grows up and it lives and when it wears out, it passes on. Uh, you know, the same thing happens. Uh, you know, in, in this window where you have uh, the, uh, areas where air, the galactic space is clear of debris and planets can, can prosper and grow and develop life. And then there's times where 
It doesn't happen anymore for a short period of time. So we've got to be happy with what we have and We've got to really start to love each other and enjoy the opportunity, this window of opportunity that we do have on this planet. Very well said. And that's essentially leading us into, well, how far back do we go? And, you know, if, if, if we had the cyclical nature of, of destruction over and over and over again, you know, are we going to make it to the next epic, to the next stage, like you said? Just imagine what the future of humanity could be. So talks about that all the time. You know, what the potential of what we have is almost infinite. It's, it's, um, it's infinite, except that we are, are, are dramatically held back by all these things that distract us and keep us locked in this illusion of the material world. And that's why So calls us. We're the children of men. We're not men. We're not yeah. mankind. We're the children of men because we're all like these little kids that refuse to accept what we, who really, we really are and what defines the nature of reality. We, we get so distracted by this physical body. You know, this is me. This is me. I need as much as I can before I die because I can't take it with me. Except that we're just eternal conscious energy and you can't take anything physical with you. Right. The only thing that matters is what you do during this life and what you leave behind in your legacy to the future. That's really all that matters. And so on that note, um, we're going to get into some of these really controversial topics because we're going to go back even further. And when when we discuss in places like the Arid Genesis and Sumerian Kinglet, when it discusses how the first city was Eridu and then all these other cities emerged afterwards, People would scratch their head and be like, well, what else does it say, right? Is it, does it say anything else about what, what happened before that? What about what about human civilizations? You know, I don't feel like a, an ape. You know, I, I really, I really, this everything in this life tells me that I'm something different from an ape. Well, evidence clearly states the opposite of what we've been told in school through this Darwinian evolution aspect of where we're told that Neanderthals and Denisovians came along and started slowly developing and then we broke away and then we had this rapid developing and then we ended up where we are. Mm -hmm. Except the problem is they don't explain at all how the human brain doubled in size in only a small time period or all these strange things about both why we have all these genetic abnormalities and you know we don't have hair on our body. We, we, if we go on to nature and we try to, try to survive in this world, we will die. It's almost like, if you look at it from the outside like an observer, it's like we're not really from here. It's like we're just here as visitors and stewards here to learn and grow, whereas what we're told is that we're just sort of this ape that got here to where we are because of survival of the fittest, and because of that we can do whatever we want, right Billy? Right, yeah, that's, I totally don't agree with that. I believe that there's micro uh, changes of, you know, that, that uh, uh, organisms are capable of, but the macro changes, like what they've just, you know, they're describing in this evolution to go from a monkey to a human being, it would take, I mean, probably billions of years. I mean, even just uh, a 2% variance, which is the difference between us and a chimpanzee, uh, that 2% variance literally takes multi-millions of years if they were to, quote-unquote, be real uh, macro evolution. Uh, and so I really do believe after looking at the research, after analyzing information in biology, having to do with chromosome number two being fused in the human genome, uh, having the telomere caps put on the end of chromosome number two, and geneticists, mainstream geneticists have said this had to be done in a laboratory. They said it out of their own mouth. They've written this down. This is like, you know, well known, but they can't just say who did it, but they can 
tell you, it seems to happen around 200,000 years ago. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Isn't that the same age we gave? If you add up all of the, the dates for the reigns of these cities, you get just over 200,000 years ago, which would fall in line with the first city ever created and this whole, I, this whole biblical story with Adam and Eve and the mm -hmm. creation of man, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so you, you start to take these biblical stories, right, that we think are all just myths, and then you take the, these direct evidence from these cuneiform tablets, and then you take all this genetic data, and you look at, uh, look at all of it on this holistic viewpoint, and all of a sudden you start to see that the story of what we've been told about who we are is extremely antiquated, biased, and inaccurate. And I actually go one step further and say that it was deliberately chosen. See, Darwin, if you look into Darwin and you look at his theory, he wrote confidently, he stated, and this is something that a lot of people don't bring up, is that he expected that his theories were going to be disproved in the future. He said that. He said he expected his theories to be disproved in the future because he saw holes in his logic. And he saw holes in what he was seeing around him, and he knew that. I, I, I know I really um, I hammer on Darwin pretty bad, but the, the more you look at it, the more you can actually see that Darwin didn't even, like I said, he didn't even think that his theories were going to be something that stood the test of time. But what happened is religion and other organizations grabbed onto Darwin because they said, here is something we can use. Yeah. What happens if human beings view their existence as an ape? You know what I mean, Billy? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If someone, if someone perceives themselves as just an ape, and that yeah. brain is created, and that consciousness is created with a brain, Billy, I'm going to ask you, how would that change both what we do here and our perspective in the universe? Well, if somebody uh, thought that they really came from apes, and that uh, consciousness comes from the brain, it would limit you. Um, because now you have a limited viewpoint of, uh, of where you came from and how you got to this point. I think that if you, um, that really locks you into the religious system. I think that if people understand that we were uh, seated on this planet, and then a little much later genetically modified maybe even again by these Anunnaki beings or these Atlantean beings at some point according to the ancient text, yeah, the understanding that layer. consciousness is not created in the brain, that consciousness is downloaded from the source. And I think that um, that would really expand people's uh, mentality to understand that they're part of something much bigger than this simple evolutionary type of a fairy tale. They're really part of the God, the, the God divine energy that's flowing through the entire universe. And that the same divine energy that is creating everything that we consider to be matter in the third dimension and reality in the third dimension, the same divine energy flowing through and coursing through their veins. Uh, and, um, you know, there was a study, and a scientific study done, where they took people and they put them in rooms and they put them in dark rooms and they put these electrodes on their head connected to a computer. They wanted to see what people's uh, brain electronically looked like on a computer after looking at specific images so they can see how the brain reacts to information and digital information and images. Well, they found out something amazing by accident. So they spaced these images 10 seconds apart. They would put up something like a serene image of a lake view or an ocean, a bed of roses, and a horrific scene like somebody getting murdered or stabbed or shot, and then a weird scene like kind of in the middle, like a building on fire and things like that. So all of a sudden what started happening is the data readout on the computer started uh, telling the computer what the next image was going to be to seven seconds in advance. So that proves that we're getting a download of information from the future or from maybe real time, and we're not living in real time. 
So again, the brain doesn't create consciousness, it downloads it. The, every case study they did, it worked that same way. After a few minutes, the human brain was picking up the next image and transmitting it to the computer before the image showed up on the screen. Every case study they did. So this, this is how powerful we truly are. Our brain has billions of magnetite crystals. We download information directly from space-time, uh, and we bring it into our reality tunnel so that we can operate within it. Uh, but that's a whole other point of view that they don't really want us to know. They want us to keep us very locked in and, and, and focused on you know, eight to human and 6,000 years and all this other kind of crazy stuff. But the true reality is we are much bigger and much more important than, than, than the evolutionary fairy tale that's been taught. That's right. And that's really well said, Billy. I could not agree more. Uh, what I wanted to say on in regards to that is um, one of the examples I give that I talk about a lot is um, human beings right now perceive themselves as just this animal, right? just this advanced animal. And it's like they're in this giant fenced-in pen, and they're all going to work, and they're all doing what they're told, and they have they live generally these very mundane lives. You know, we just come home, we watch TV, we maybe we go out for a hike every once in a while, we go out to do something, but largely our lives are very um, uneventful. And and then before we die, that's why the regrets of most people is that they never really did anything. Okay, now, so those that that's this form of conformity that we talk about, where people, the perception of reality that's been created here is not simply just based on some scientist that created it. No, that's what all the evidence says, so we're going to go along with that. It's actually a paradigm to control our consciousness and how we perceive reality here. Because we're about to read some cuneiform tablets that completely contradict what we're told, and you're going to see how this mindset could control human civilization. So getting back before we start that, getting back to... I want to bring up a point, getting back to this farm of conformity. Um, those animals that are in that farm, doing what they're doing on a daily basis, going to some dead-end job and wasting all their energy and time, and then they die and they wonder what they spent all their time doing. If those animals, and I use that animal as, that term animal as just uh, an example, because we're not really animals at all, are we? If those animals realize that they're not farm animals at all, and that they're actually this incredible being that doesn't belong caged at all. It belongs, you know, it doesn't belong having its wings clipped. It belongs out expanding consciousness and reaching the infinite stars and all these things, whereas the complete opposite is happening right now. And when those, when you discover the truth and when you read these ancient translations and tablets and when you look at all this data, it's like finding a hole in that fence and running away and never coming back ever again. The challenge that I put to every single person here, I bring this up in my previous book, the challenge, and it goes along with Plato's case, that the idea that everyone's trapped by these illusions, is that you have to, when you break out of that pen and you run away and the sun is asking on you and you're free, the challenge then becomes you have to come back. You have to come back and save the rest of the animals that are in that farm, or they're not going to make it out. And that collective of humanity is going to go down that road that other civilizations did, and we're going to be wiped out, and we're going to disappear and become a myth just like they did, because we're not learning the fundamental lessons we need to right now to make changes and reach the next level of our consciousness. So, so on that note, Billy, let's go into what actually says in these tablets and discuss it. Okay. So, and so we're going to be starting with, um, we're going to be starting with what's called the Enuma Elish, and I know it's very dear to your heart, Billy, because one of the ones yeah. I know you talk about um, among the most of all. And the Enuma Elish was found in the Ashurbanipal Library, as I mentioned, in 1849. Mm -hmm. And 
there's been many translations and different versions of it that have been brought up. And, and I want to also just mention before we bring that up that it may be amazing for some to read and understand that you'll bring you'll, you'll read one version of the Enuma Elish, then you'll read another version, like the Babylonian version, you'll notice that they're different. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to bring up is that there is a competition among these gods for who created mankind and who can get credit for being their savior and their and their fa- great father. And so if you read Babylonian versions of what we're about to read right now, you find out that says that Marduk created mankind, right? And we're gonna, we can get into it and talk about that as well, but it's this competition for who can be the savior and who could be the, the great creator of, of our species. So in the version we're going to be reading, it's the version that came out of Nineveh, and it's the version that I feel is the most accurate. Um, and it, it was translated by uh, great translators like Stephanie Daly and George Smith, some of, some of the best that have been out there. Um, and so the Enuma Elish starts by saying, in, in this, from where we're going to begin, it says, They bound him, holding him before Ea. They inflicted the penalty on him and severed his, his blood vessels. From his blood, he, Ea, created mankind, on whom he imposed the service of the gods, set the gods free. And then it says, after the wise Ea had created mankind and had imposed the service of the gods upon them, that task is beyond comprehension. The gods were then divided. All the Anunnaki into upper and lower groups. He assigned 300 in the heavens to guard the decrees of Anu and appoint them as a guard. Chapter 6. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing, yeah. I mean, it, it, it tells you right there, and Billy, I'm sure you know that that same description is almost um, referenced um, exactly in the Atrahasis as well. Isn't that, isn't that just mind-boggling with all these questions yeah. that people have? It's amazing that the Atrahasis epic and this have so many similar verses in them. So it tells you that it's right on point. You know, it's really amazing. And uh, the thing that I like about the, the Enuma Elish is the fact that it mentions the Anunnaki, it mentions uh, Marduk or, uh, or the Nibiru planet, and depending on the verse that you're reading, and you can find Marduk in the modern-day Bible, you can find him in the Torah, you can find these names through the American Library. So it's not even been hidden, it's there, but people have just never paid attention to it. Well, let's, let's try to have people understand they might not know these names. So Ea, that's mentioned directly in this translation that we read, his name originally was known as Ea before he came here, and then he, his title was, was then changed to Enki. Okay, now, so Enki, I'm just going to refer to him as Enki, though, because that was his later, his later name. But Enki is the one that is credited in every single ancient text, except some of these other versions that were later rewritten, as being the creator of mankind. And he was, he was said to be this great being that created mankind to do the workload of the gods. And actually the phrase I like even more, if you go read the Atrahasis, which those translations are in the stage of time, is it the, the phrase that it gives in the Atrahasis is even better. It says, he created mankind specifically for the role of the, to, to do the role of the gods, but it says the phrase, to undo the chains to set them free. Undo the chains to set them free. Now, I want to tell you what I think about that, and then maybe you can mention what you think, Billy. Um, but but I, I believe that that references the change of the physical reality of the third dimension and being mortal. I think mm-hmm. these beings use human, the human race as a way to achieve immortality and also probably to achieve a non-physical um, existence here where they could go into upper dimensions and basically rule over us because we exist you know, in a lower state of awareness than they do. 
and this, and then, I, and then you can chime in. But I want to also mention that well, who is Marduk? Because we brought that up. Marduk is credited as being the first son of, of Enkidu, and so this competition arose between these younger generation gods and the older generation gods over competing here on, on on who could rewrite everything, who could become the savior, who could become the great great god here, and that's what this competition has been over and over and over again. And that's why Billy and I try to fight so hard to try to get the most accurate information because it's just a battle of information and it's a battle of understanding the, the truth, right, Billy? Oh, it's a big battle. I mean, uh, you know, even I just made a post on Instagram about the fact that Marduk, also known as Amin Ra, is responsible for the defacing of a lot of these statues and these hieroglyphs around Egypt. And a lot of people got immediately offended and they're really going crazy on the comments here. When I get off this show with you, I'm going to check my comments. It's going to be real hectic. Because people don't want to um, uh, come to terms with the fact that this was done in deep antiquity. I've been to Egypt. I've seen the thousands upon thousands of defaced gods in the hieroglyphs. I'm talking about temples with probably, I would say, two, three hundred thousand glyphs in one temple all chipped away. Faces of all of the uh, statues broken off. And these go way back further than Napoleon. You know, they want to say Napoleon went and shot the noses off and people didn't want people to know that there were some black people in Egypt. No. Amin Ra, also known as Marduk, is the one who had this done because why? Because he wants to be known as the, only, the one and true only God. The same term that actually made it into the modern day Bible. Uh, you know, they had, these guys had big egos. I mean, big, big, big egos, man. Um, and they were battling each other consistently to be the one to do this and the one to do that. And matter of fact, if you look in the modern day Bible, look at the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, and especially when you figure out that the word God in the Bible is mistranslated with God singular, it's supposed to be God plural, everywhere in the entire Bible. Yeah. It was purposefully done. In the book of Deuteronomy, you have these gods for Marduk and his cousins and his nephews and everybody else fighting each other and sending humans across to another area where people that they don't know, never met before, to battle them, to, to rob and rape and steal and everything else. These are the actual words used in the modern day Bible, rape, kill, murder, uh, and before, you know, they were battling each other using humans as, as cattle, kind of like we do today. We take somebody out of school, we send them halfway around the world, put them in the military, tell them to go blow up a guy on a camel so he can get a free education. It's a mind trick we played on the people now, so they've got these gods doing the same thing today as they did in ancient times. Uh, but uh, it's really amazing how they wanted to be able to take claim for everything. And you see it passed down to the pharaohs. The pharaohs could take claim for a tomb that wasn't theirs. They would take claim for a pyramid that they didn't really build. They take claim for anything because they want to have that. Uh, they want to have that reputation to add it to their bio. That you know? legacy, right? Yeah, that legacy. It's crazy. It's and and that's where it really comes down to. Um, and that legacy is what is being fought over right now. That 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 battle has not ended. It's just we don't perceive it the same way because our understanding of linear time um, is is different than perhaps others. Um, yeah. We exist in a certain kind of 24-hour cycle based on this 12-hour clock. And it's really interesting if you look at the origins of where that came from and how that rules everything. Because how we perceive time is how we perceive events and how we perceive this, um, how things go over the course of history. Um, and I want to bring up a couple little interesting points uh, as we talk about human origin. Is that, and we really touched on that well when Billy was discussing how you know, we download consciousness or we're like antennas for consciousness. And that we're really these beings that are here that didn't arise from just simply just an evolved state. Now, I do, I do believe that human beings are a product that includes 
um, a primitive um, deep, but that as like a blueprint, that doesn't mean that that's our complete origins. Um, let me give you an example. I think this is one of the best examples to really look at this, to just prove what, what has been taught. Well, we brought up what's called micro versus macro. Micro means very small. Macro means larger. And so, and that's one of the things that I, I talk about in the stage of time a lot is that, like Lloyd Pye says, evolution, as we've been taught, is much more likely to be on a micro scale than on a macro scale, meaning that small things do happen over time based on the environment and things that occur. Large things either take a really, really long time or they did not happen the way that we're told. And the same thing happened with humanity and the human race. Because if, if you look at how far back the human race goes and everything we've left behind in writings, everything we've left behind in observations throughout time, there's never been one mention ever of an ape been observed changing on a level that we can understand that would be related to evolution. Yes, there's apes that can be taught, gorillas and things that can be taught how to read certain things and, and certain intelligence because they do blood. He, Ea, created mankind, on whom he imposed the service of the gods, set the gods free. It's forbidden knowledge and secrets of and ancient says, history, Billy Carson and Matthew Ea had created mankind and had imposed the service of the yeah. gods upon them. That task is beyond comprehension. The gods were then divided. All the Anunnaki into Thank upper you. and lower groups. He assigned 300 in the heavens to guard the decrees of Anu and appoint them as a guard. Chapter 6. Isn't that amazing? Anubis. Amazing, yeah. I mean, it, it, it just tells you right there. And Billy, I'm sure you know that that same description is almost um, referenced um, exactly the in the Andrahasis as well. Isn't that, isn't that just mind boggling with all these questions yeah. that people have? It's amazing that the Atreasis epic and this have so many similar verses in them. So it tells you that it's, it's right on point. You know, it's really amazing. And uh, the thing that I like about the, the Enuma Elish is the fact that it mentions the Anunnaki, it mentions uh, Marduk or, or the Nibiru planet, and depending on the version that you're reading. And you can find Marduk in the modern day Bible. You can find him in the Torah. You can find these names through the American Library. So it's not even been hidden. It's there, but people have just never paid attention to it. Well, let's, let's try to have people understand they might not know these names. So Ea, that's mentioned directly in this translation that we read, his name originally was known as Ea before he came here, and then he, his title was then changed to Enki. Okay, now, so Enki, I'm just going to refer to him as Enki, that was because that was his later, his later name. But Enki is the one that is credited in every single ancient text except some of these other versions that were later rewritten as being the creator of mankind. And he was, he was said to be this great being that created mankind to do the workload of the gods. And actually the phrase I like even more, if you go read the Atrahasis, which those translations are in the stage of time, is it the, the phrase that it gives in the Atrahasis is even better. It says, he created mankind specifically for the role of the, to, to do the role of the gods, but it says the phrase, to undo the chain to set them free. Undo the chain to set them free. Now, I want to tell you what I think about that, and then maybe you can mention what you think, Billy. Um, but but I, I believe that that references the chain of the physical reality of the third dimension and being mortal. I think mm -hmm. the beings used human, the human race as a way to achieve immortality and also probably to achieve a non-physical um, ex existence here where they could go into upper dimensions and basically rule over us because we exist in a, in a lower state of awareness than they do. 
and the, and then and then you can chime in. But I want to also mention is that well, who is Marduk? Marduk is credited as being the first son of of Enkidia, and so this competition arose between these younger generation gods and the older generation gods over competing here on, on, on who could rewrite everything, who could become the savior, who could become the great great god here. And that's what this competition has been over and over and over again. And that's why Billy and I try to fight so hard, to try to get the most accurate information because it's a, it's a battle of information. And it's a battle of understanding the, the truth, right, Billy? Oh, it's the big battle. I mean, uh, you know, even I just made a post on Instagram about the fact that Marduk, also known as Amun-Ra, is responsible for the defacing of a lot of these statues and these hieroglyphs around Egypt. And a lot of people got immediately offended and they're really going crazy on the comments here. When I get off of this, this show with you, I'm gonna check my comments, it's gonna be real hectic. Because people don't want to um, uh, come to terms with the fact that this was they're done in deep antiquity. I've been to Egypt, I've seen the thousands upon thousands of defaced gods and the hieroglyphs. I'm talking about temples with glyphs probably, I would say, two or 300,000 glyphs in one temple all chipped away. Faces of all of the uh, statues broken off. And these go way back further than Napoleon. You know, they want to say Napoleon went and shot the noses off and people didn't want people to know that there were some black people in Egypt. That's what, no, Amun-Ra, also known as Marduk, is the one who had this done because why? Because he wants to be known as the, only, the one and true only God, the same term that actually made it into modern day Bible. Uh, you know, had, these guys had big egos. I mean, big, big, big egos, man. Um, and they were battling each other consistently to be the one to do this and the one to do that. And matter of fact, if you look in the modern day Bible, look at the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and especially when you figure out that the word God in the Bible is mistranslated with God's singular, it's supposed to be God's plural, everywhere in the entire Bible. Yeah. It was purposefully done. In the book of Deuteronomy, you have these gods who are Marduk and his cousins and his nephews and everybody else fighting each other and sending humans across to another area where people that they don't know, never met before, to battle them, to, to rob and rape and steal and everything else. These are the actual words used in the modern day Bible, rape, kill, murder, uh, and oh, right. forth, you know? And they were battling each other using humans as, as cattle, kind of like we do today. We take somebody out of school, we send them halfway around the world, put them in the military, tell them to go blow up a guy on a camel so he can get a free education. It's a mind trick we played on the people now. So they've got these gods doing the same thing today as they did in ancient times. Uh, but uh, it's really amazing how they wanted to be able to take claim for everything. And you see it passed down to the pharaohs. The pharaohs would take claim for a tomb that wasn't theirs. They would take claim for a pyramid that they didn't really build. They take claim for anything because they want to have that, uh, they want to have that reputation to add it to their bio. That you legacy, know? right? Yeah, that legacy is crazy. It's, and, and that's what it really comes down to. Um, and that legacy is what is being fought over right now. That 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 battle has not ended. It's just we don't perceive it the same way because our understanding of linear time um, is is different than perhaps others. Um, yeah. We exist in a certain kind of 24-hour cycle based on this 12-hour clock. And it's really interesting to, if you look at the origins of where that came from and how that rules everything. Because how we perceive time is how we perceive events and how we perceive the, um, how things go over the course of history. Um, and I want to bring up a couple of little interesting points uh, as we talk about human origins is that, and we really touched on that well when Billy was discussing how, you know, we download consciousness or we're like antennas for consciousness and that we're really these beings that are here that didn't arise from just simply just an evolved state. Now, I do, I do believe that human beings are a product that includes 
um, a primitive um, deep, but that as like a blueprint, that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that that's our complete origins. Um, let me give you an example. I think this is one of the best examples to really look at this, to disprove what, what has been taught. Billy brought up what's called micro versus macro. Micro means very small, macro means larger. And so, and that's one of the things that I, I talk about in the stage of time a lot is that like Lloyd Pye says, evolution as we've been taught is much more likely to be on a micro scale than on a macro scale. Meaning that small things do happen over time based on the environments and things that occur. Large things either take a really, really long time or they did not happen the way that we're told. And I think the same thing happened with humanity and the human race. Because if, if you look at how far back the human race goes and everything we've left behind in writings, everything we've left behind in observations throughout time, there's never been one mention ever of an ape that's been observed changing on a level that we can understand that would be related to evolution. Yes, there's apes that can be taught, gorillas and things that can be taught how to read certain things and, and certain intelligence because they do have an intelligence that can reach a certain level and that is rather intelligent. It's nowhere on the same scale of what human consciousness and the human brain is capable of on or even on the same the same level because when we look at human beings and the the fact that we only have 46 chromosomes instead of the 48 that's found in most primates you really can see that there's been this gen genetic manipulation that's occurred over time and i don't even think that that happened once bill and i want your, your opinion billy but it seems like if you read some of these stories and what they spoke about in these tablets is that humans were becoming, were way too smart and way too conscious and mm -hmm. we were uh, potentially tampered with and, and then dumbed down, right? That's exactly right. I mean, I just talked about this at a lecture at Disclosure Fest in California a few months ago. The fact that our, our immediate cousins right behind us, to me, were much smarter than us. Based off of what I've read and researched, they were probably more, more, not maybe technologically smarter. That's potential. That's potentially they were, but I think that they were more smarter, smarter spiritually, more in tune with nature, more in tune with the human resonant frequency of the earth. They were using the magnetite crystals in their brains. They may have even been telepathic. Uh, they may have had more DNA connected to the avatar system. Right now, we have this quote unquote junk DNA, which is not really junk, it's disconnected. We've been disconnected from the higher realms and higher levels these Anunnaki people uh, to, to keep us a little bit more dumbed down. Our brains, uh, our, our pineal glands are probably shrunk a little bit smaller than our, than our immediate cousins and making us into this homo sapien sapien uh, being right now that we're in this new biological avatar. Uh, they've got us in a way where they've kind of put a cap on us, literally. They put a cap on us physically with their telomere caps and then they put a cap on us. Look, people who don't know what telomeres are, on the end of chromosome number two, scientists, geneticists discovered Chromosome number two was fused together, taken out, fused together. A cap was put on each end, and these caps are like buffer material of genetic uh, information. So every time that your cells DNA replicate, it, nothing gets lost in translation. However, these buffer caps run out of material. And what's interesting is when you go to the biblical account of the Tower of Babel, you discover that uh, human beings were working together on one accord to build this tower to the heavens. And whether it was a space tower, whether it was a, a, a cargo cult type of a tower mimicking what the Anunnaki or these Atlantean people had built, or whether it was just a tower that they came together and decided to build this tower, doesn't really matter. What happens is Enlil, who's known as Yahweh in the modern-day Bible, he gets he comes back and realizes that humans are getting too smart. They're getting too intelligent. I mean, this is crazy. He even says out of his own mouth, no matter what they set their minds to do, they can achieve it. 
So he says at that point, first he destroys the tower, then he says, my seed shall not abide in man forever. We were living for a very, very long time back then. This is well documented, though. It's written about, and then a lot of ancient uh, civilizations talk about the fact that human beings were living for many hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. He said, my seed shall not abide in man forever. His years will be 120. A Harvard scientist just recently discovered two years ago that the under the most pristine conditions, a human being can only live to 120 years, backing up ancient texts with modern science. And then they discovered these telomere caps, and they, they discovered how to stop the telomere caps from shrinking in mice. So they, uh, they then uh, uh, had mice living three times their normal lifespan with this new technique that they use on telomeres, which means that they can then now do it on human beings as well. So that the possibility for us to live for hundreds of years or even thousands of years is well within reach of modern science at this particular moment. But again, the scientists, like I said earlier, were saying that they don't know who did this, but it happened about 200,000 years ago. This is all really coming together, the culmination of science, modern science backing up these ancient tablets, adding more credence to what we're talking about, and really adding right now, giving us the evidence that we need to talk about these topics and bring it to everybody out in the world. That's right. That was really well said, Billy, and I, I couldn't agree more. It's If you think about it as why would they want to, why would that need to be done, right? So if you were let's call you you an overlord of human civilization. If human beings could live for hundreds of years, if not more than a thousand years, think about how much knowledge you can obtain in that amount of time. Think about how much, how, how much fundamentally you could change and reach these higher states and all of this. So it was realized that, well, it'd be a lot easier to prevent that by just making so they, they would only die at a certain age which actually, if you look at the potential of what the Emerald Tablet says and the Sumerian King List and the others about how long even humans or other beings could potentially live, um, 120 years is, is like a little, it's like a yeah. little look at your fingers is actually nothing if you look nothing. at how far back time goes and these civil, how long these civilizations ruled for and all these things. And you brought up those great points is that here we have scientists that are verifying that these things occurred to our DNA a certain amount of years ago, and you're getting the same cuneiform tablets that then back them up by not only saying that human civilization was created at the same time, and then showing the, the long reigns of these great bloodline kings, proving that human beings also lived longer, then you see the destruction of all of that and how we had to restart over again, and, and then the human lives became less and less over time to where we got now. Um, I think that you see all these shows where they talk about the telekinesis abilities of, of mm -hmm. certain special individuals and all of this stuff. And you read the Emerald Tablets and a lot of this other, these ancient texts as well. And they all clearly state that human beings used to have all these gifts, yep. all these abilities and, and live a long time. And all of those things were taken away from us to prevent a lot of those um, changes that were occurring to keep us in this, um, this never-ending loop of, of how I, what I feel is that we essentially live this life, we, we, we spell all the energy until we're done, and then we have mm -hmm. to do it all over again, over mm -hmm. and over and over again. And yeah. that's that chain. I think that's that chain that they did, that they, that un, undid the chain to, that allowed them to be free, was essentially making us the ones that do that, that life that they used to have to do. Mm -hmm. having to live another life again and do it all over again and have to grow up again and learn everything, they essentially achieved immortality and, and, and were able to rise above that, whereas we're stuck. Not only do we not know the truth, but we're kept in this paradigm as almost like mental slaves, when you say, yeah. Billy? 
Absolutely. I mean, you hit it right on the head. We're literally trapped in this uh, this spiritual cycle as well. You know, so once the avatar body uh, has broken down and, and dilapidated and decides to die, then your spirit is released back into the universal consciousness again, becomes recycled right back into the system again. Uh, you know, and uh, the, the Anunnaki, these Atlantean people, they had discovered a way to, to surpass uh, this recycling. They've also discovered a way to, you know, Thoth talks about consciously incarnating at will. They also talked about having these avatar bodies on standby and regeneration chambers, which I'm sure Earth wasn't just the only place that they had one. They had one in the halls of Amenti, which was discovered. I talk about it in my book, Underneath the Great Pyramid. It extends about a mile out underneath the Giza Plateau, hundreds of rooms down there, exactly what Thoth said they were, where they would put a body in leave the body in there, a human body or avatar body, because it wasn't exactly a human, because he said that uh, while one body was uh, was uh, ba basically being recharged, he would walk amongst men in another body, but walk amongst men, but unlike a man. So they were creating these avatars. And what have we now discovered in modern science? We can take literally a skin cell off of your body. We can then put it in a laboratory condition and turn that skin cell into a stem cell. And we can grow that stem cell into an entire clone of you now with the technology we have, now that we have these um, uh, DNA hard drives and some of the technology being developed at DARPA and also at the 2045 project by Ray Kurzweil in, in um, Russia, we can transfer consciousness, like Thoth talks about transferring his consciousness into avatars. We can do it now in modern times. So in the future, it's potentially going to come to be that you'll transfer your consciousness into an avatar body. Before you die. No, before you die. So exactly. that you can then transfer it over and then you can have that, regain all that, right? Exactly. You you don't lose anything. You just go into another body. Uh, and Thoth says he had done this a uh, hundred times a hundred. That's a hundred thousand years. Just imagine that. Just stop there for a second, Billy. He says he's done that not a couple times mm -hmm. and not even a hundred times. He's done it a thousand times. He's lived a thousand times and while his body recharged crazy <laughs> um so we're talking about history that has we have to completely try to readjust our understanding of how far back time goes and how far back all of this information goes you know we're living in this little glimpse of what used to be long ago um and i and i think what you said is spot on um one of the things i include in the stage of time is a, is a god chart at the end because uh it, it, including for thought and i, I just mm -hmm. wanted to show that because we're talking yeah. about it um but in, in here, I included some question marks in Sumer because mm -hmm. it's when you trace back Thoth and you trace back some of these incarnations to like Hermes and then long before, you find out, well, how far back did these did these beings in, incarnate? You know, who were they originally? And yeah. we have to completely look at all of these, um, what we perceived as gods, but also we perceived as these great leaders and these great wisdom bringers. We have to really um, re-look at, you know, who are they? Are they maybe an incarnation of, of another great teacher from long ago? And I think, Billy, that is going to lead us perfectly into Atlantis. Because yes. when we we're talking about, we're talking about this birthplace of civilization, okay? And I want to just lay that out there before we get into Atlantis so we can keep this timeline going. Sumerian king lists in the era of Genesis, and along with all the other things we're talking about with the evidence from ice cores, they support that these civilizations were well over 10,000 years ago. In fact, if you, again, the Sumerian king list would support that they were more likely 200,000 years ago. And what is important about that is it gives us a time frame to then work with. So then after 
these civilizations emerged out of Mesopotamia. If you go with what the actual evidence says, it makes the most logical sense that then grand civilization that was created that we think of as a global civilization is, was what was known as Atlantis. And that was this global maritime civilization that reached all the way around the world and connected to, to all this evidence. And that's why you see so many common traits that we're going to go over uh, throughout the show all over the world. Now, so if Atlantis is the birth, birthplace of where this great global civilization emerged, then it would mean that it has the most amount of ancient wisdom of any civilization that's ever existed because it was around the, the longest amount of time with the most amount of knowledge that was freely available. Because as Billy has stated, this whole restarting of civilization um, and it's the battling of the gods, both second and first generation, meant that information was being fought over, held, um, concealed, destroyed, um, uh, rewritten and tampered with to confuse everybody. So, but back then it wasn't like that. Back then, that information was pure, and that's what Thoth was trying to preserve. So, it, so civilization that emerged out and became Atlantis, this great global civilization, its greatest priest was known as Thoth. And that's where all of this comes from. So Thoth had all of the knowledge of Atlantis. And he, because he was a master alchemist, he created what is known as the Emerald Tablets out of this indestructible material so that that knowledge that existed from the very beginning describing everything from, from where it started could be preserved. But not only that, is those teachings that could help us ascend to reach that higher level, that, that walkthrough guide for reaching highest state you can, that's what this is. And so what Billy and I are gonna be doing that's gonna be special is you're gonna be dual reading Emerald Tablet number one, which, which brings all of this in for the first time so we can understand the importance of where all of this came from. Okay, so I'm going to start. Emerald Tablet number one starts by saying, I, Thoth, the Atlantean, master of mysteries, keeper of records, mighty king, magician, living from generation to generation, being about to pass into the halls of Amenti, set down for the guidance of those who came from after, those records of the mighty wisdom of great Atlantis. In the great city of Kior, on the island of Undal, in the great time far past, I began this incarnation. Not as the little men of the present age did, the mighty ones of Atlantis live and die, but rather from eon to eon did they renew their life in the halls of Amenti, where the river of life flows eternally onward. A hundred times ten have I descended the dark way that led into light, and as many times have I ascended from the darkness into the light my strength and power renewed. Now for a time I descend, and the men of Chem shall know me no more. But in a time yet unborn, I will rise again, mighty and potent, requiring an accounting of those left behind me. Then beware, O men of Cam, if ye have falsely betrayed my teaching, for I shall cast ye down from your high estate into the darkness of the caves from where ye hence came. Remember and heed my words, for surely I will return again and require of thee that which ye guard, even from beyond time and from beyond death will I return, rewarding or punishing, as ye have required your trust. Great were my people in the ancient days, great beyond the conception of the little people now around me. Knowing the wisdom of old, seeking far within the heart of infinity, knowledge that belonged to the earth's youth. Wise we were with the wisdom of the children of light who dwelt among us. Strong were we with the power drawn from the eternal fire. 
And of all these, greatest among the children of men was my father, Thothmeg, keeper of the great temple, link between the children of light who dwelt within the temple and the races of men who in inhabited the ten islands, the dweller of Unal, speaker of the king to the kings, with a voice that must be obeyed. Grew I there from a child into manhood, being taught by my father the elder mysteries, until in the time grew within the fire of wisdom, until it burst into a consuming flame. Not desired I but the attainment of wisdom, until on a great day commanded, command came from the dweller of the temple that I be brought before him. Few there were among the children of men who had looked upon the mighty face and lived. For not as the sons of men are the children of light when they are the, not to incarnate in the physical body. Chosen was I from the sons of men, taught by the dweller, so that his purpose might be fulfilled. Purposes yet unborn in the womb of time. Long ago I dwelt in the temple, learning ever and yet ever more wisdom, until I, too, approached the light emitted from the great fire. Taught me he the path to Amenti, the underworld where the great king sits upon his throne of might. Deep I bowed in homage before the lords of life and the lord of death, receiving my gift, the key of life. Free was I of the halls of Amenti, bound not by death to the circle of life. Far to the stars I journey until space and time became the naught. Then having drunk deep of the cup of wisdom, I looked into the hearts of men, and there I found the great mysteries and was glad. For only in the search for truth could my soul be stilled, with the flame would within be quenched. Down through the ages I, I lived, seeing those around me taste of the cup of death and return again into the light of life. Amazing. It's, it's so powerful, Billy. Um, I want to just put my thoughts on that um, for, for a second, and then I want you to chime in, and we'll just talk mm -hmm. about this for a minute. So to start, this, what, you just, what you just heard is part of tablet number one that was handed down as part of the Emerald Tablets of this ancient wisdom. Now, this wasn't being read, as you can tell, in Atlantis. It was being read in Egypt because mm -hmm. he, he talks about the men of Kem in it. That means that when Atlantis was being destroyed, Thoth and his trusty um, masons and priests and those who were around him, they all fled Atlantis, this island subcontinent that was considered this principal island subcontinent of seven circular islands with this large central landmass mass in the middle called Undal. Okay, and the, and the central city on Undal was known as Kior, and that's where Thoth says he was, he was born in this life, and, he, and then he was raised and, until he became uh, a very wise priest. And so they, they fled Atlantis to create this new civilization in Egypt, and that's where he was essentially is reading and providing this knowledge to the men of Kemp. What I want to just bring up that I want you to talk about, Billy, that's amazing, is he talked about, he talked about how there was this connection that existed within these temples to these children of light with the children of men. And that only through these temples could they acquire this connection to essentially speak to the gods. So the Emerald Tablets is talking about how in Atlantis, these great priests in these temples basically had a connection to the gods, right? Yeah, I mean, they literally are talking now. these gods <laughs> might be these much more progenitor level uh, gods. Uh, or maybe these uh, could be even people or, or entities from another dimension that we're interacting with them, maybe even passing them knowledge. I mean, there's so much <laughs> that we just don't know. But uh, through these temples and even like in the halls of Amenti, both would appear there and disappear from there. So 
they could be using these temples uh, inside of them at some point. There could be portals to other dimensions. An ibis face. Masters. He's, and he says in several occasions that he met some of these cycle masters. And in some of the other tablets, one of the things I find amazing is that he mentions how he was shown um, chaos that exists beyond our physical dimension and how mm -hmm. he, there are these great masters that prevent all this darkness and evil from, from entering in. And that over time, some of those great masters um, were, were no longer present anymore to defend that. And that could be one of the reasons why so much darkness and evil was allowed into our realm is that these great protectors these great priests you know these great um men who would sit up on mountaintops and command their vibrational frequency into the universe they were protecting this realm from evil and they, those men only don't exist in the same capacity they used to anymore and so that's why this torch oh. that's being passed down to then allow others to find truth is, is being given to us right absolutely and if you Listen to what you just said. It's a perfect description of uh, Doctor Strange, the movie Doctor Strange, <laughs> uh, where they were. It's the same exact story. I think they copied it from the Emerald Tablets, to be quite honest with you. The fact that they had to have these cycle masters and they had to be to to, to uh, ward off evil from attacking and destroying the planet and so forth. But some leaked in. It's the same story as the Emerald Tablets. They made it into a box office movie. It's right, and so you, you you tend to see when you when you review all this stuff and you go back and look at other movies and things, it all starts to make sense, and it really starts to blow your mind when you mm -hmm. can put all this together into a place where you can say, "Wow, this stuff is real!" And look, it's all around me. I just didn't notice it because I hadn't actually put those pieces together in like a chronological order based on the evidence. Because right. you can't just listen to what Billy and I are saying. You got to go look at this stuff yourself. Go read the Emerald Tablets. Go see some of this wisdom ponder on its mysteries and decide for yourself what's real and what might just be an illusion. And, 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 that, and that's where we move to understanding, well, what happened next? So Atlantis was destroyed. And while it was being destroyed, both in his, his priests, they left and they founded this civilization we know of as Kemp in Egypt. And this is, and Fulp says in that, that he was the great builder of these pyramids and that this was... There you go. Yep. But, but Thoth said he was the builder of the <laughs> pyramids. One of four. I'll tell you, it's amazing. I mean, the yeah. evidence there is just mind blowing. Going to Egypt, I spent a lot of time there. Thankfully, I was able to do that. I was blessed to be able to do that. Uh, and to, you know, go to almost every major temple in Egypt, had to get on a plane three times to fly to different areas to get out to these places, drive through the middle of the desert for hours to get to temples. And um, one thing you notice that is consistent, megalithic blocks, no mortar, uh, impossible cornering into brick masonry, uh, magnetic granite. You know, this is all there. It's everywhere you go. And it points to the one architect, you know, and, and as you look around the planet, you see the same exact type of architecture, but again, points to one main architect. One person laid out this plan and said, look, this is the design plan. I duplicated everywhere. And that's how it was done. Uh, but what's really amazing is that the Great Pyramid at Giza, uh, the way that the structure is set up, you can just see the resonating energy and power from it. I had the, I had the, uh, the, the blessing to be able to go to some of the underground tunnels there 
And that area used to be flooded with an aquifer in some of those parts. And then aquifer would allow physiostatic electricity to be transmitted up into the base of the Great Pyramid. And from there, it would be shot up into the, to the Grand Gallery, which probably had resonating chambers in it, or resonating rods, that would then fire that, put that power up into the King's Chamber, which I had the blessing of going into. Uh, and then I believe, personally, that the Ark of the Covenant used to sit inside that box that they try to call a sarcophagus. It's the perfect, it's the same exact dimensions as the Ark of the Covenant. And that would mm -hmm. interact with this Ark, and that would create some type of a master spark, which then would be shot through the apex. Uh, and I believe that the Great Pyramid was a multifunctional stone, or is still a multifunctional stone computer, kind of now partly broken because the cap has been taken off and some of the technology has been taken out. But it, it, it operated as a wireless um, uh, generator, wireless power generator. It operated as a portal generator. Uh, it operated as a stabilizer because the Great Pyramid is directly at the center of the mass of the Earth. Not the center of the Earth, the center of land mass of the Earth. It's located directly on that spot. Uh, it also to me was a communication device with the uh, shafts reach out to the Orion and the Sirius. I believe that those were, uh, they had a capability of sending some type of a subspace frequency to those star systems to communicate back and forth. Uh, you know, so it's just, it's just amazing. And then when you take a look at the Giza Plateau itself, I have a video on my YouTube channel about it. Where the temples and the pyramids are located. You can actually create a circular grid based off of the alignments. And you get an exact alignment from the NASA inner or interplanetary star system and interplanetary system around our star and overlay it onto the um, grid map of the Giza Plateau with the temples and the, and the pyramids and you get a perfect match. So it, the, the, the Giza Plateau is a map of the interplanet star, uh, inner planets of our solar system close to our sun. I'm talking about Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Those four and our sun are mapped out right there at Giza on the plateau. Amazing. Basically, basically, we're looking at a lost civilization with technology that was existing and it's now just these remnants and pieces that are left. And, yeah. and what Billy said is, is, is spot on is that here we have these structures that we've been told how we're housing pharaohs. And that's what everyone is told in school and that's how they perceive the purpose of all these structures. Okay, yeah, they wanted to be remembered in the future so they buried them there and then, oh look, that's their tomb. Whereas when, when people, you know, that's, that's what we, we're, we're dealing with here is that there's a paradigm that's been created about ancient history and about our origins, about everything we perceive in reality to, to create this certain doctrine here of, of what we think and what we follow. Whereas when you start looking at the evidence from the Great Pyramids, you, like Billy said, you look at the Great Pyramid Giza and you say, there's never been a pharaoh ever found there. And there's not even ever been any hieroglyphs inside. In fact, there's all this strange technology with these chambers pointing at different star systems and water being utilized underneath and all these secret tunnels connecting all these specific points and quickly you get to, you get to realize oh wow so this is this is not a tomb at all then you factor in things like the fact that this is located right in the very center of the land masses of the earth and that it's on these important ley lines these convergence centers of energy just like all the other structures all around the world that we're about to go over in a few minutes, you get to see that there was this giant grid system created here. This giant grid system created here, harnessing electromagnetic energy. And that these, these sophisticated cultures were likely, like Billy said, they may have been connected to all of the stars. We don't know how advanced the civilization was because the destruction that destroyed it was so severe that all that was literally all that was left of these civilizations 
for these megalithic structures they created and some of the stories and writings that were left behind we carried on in the future. Everything else that existed was either buried or destroyed over time. And so that, that's what we're trying to put these clues and pieces together to these lost civilizations of human history that connect all the way back to human origins. But that story does not end in Egypt. It does not end in Kem, because we have to understand that Egypt, the name itself, is a name that came later. And I want to point out, and I've mentioned it many times, is that we see a distinct difference in the sophistication and building of a lot of this advanced technology in Egypt, along with some later building of dynastic pharaohs, and I want to point that out. So when you go to a place like Karnak, and you have, a, you have these large blocks of things like travertine, and you can't find travertine more than a thousand miles away in Turkey, and you have these huge granite blocks like above the tomb of Osiris, which is not a real tomb at all. It's more of a physical, uh, a non-physical um, energy reincarnation tomb for a great being, Osiris, that I believe was connected to Enki. But anyway, when you start to look at that, and you look at those massive stone blocks that were quarried at the Aswan Quarry hundreds of miles away, it all starts to make sense to say, ah, so these different distinct time periods occurred with these different civilizations that then passed down knowledge to the next one that came. And then over time, every single time one of these civilizations came later, more and more knowledge was lost. And then before you know it, we lumped them all together as just one civilization. And, and, and that's where a lot of this confusion comes in, right, Billy? Well, absolutely. I mean, you hit it right on the head. I mean, literally what's happened is every time you move to another generation or another dynastic era, the, the technology gets worse, the construction gets worse. That's a video that I had made, I guess, with some other guys on YouTube where they, they kind of gave me an impromptu interview. And I had said, I told them that the further back you go, the more to forward in time, the worse the construction. And I've seen that's it. the opposite we've been told, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how could that be? It's more, how can it be perfect in the past in the deep antiquity and then be worse in the current day? Uh, and anybody who doesn't believe this, you just need to do one thing. Save up your money, fly to Egypt, land in Cairo, and look how the people live. Look at the buildings that they're living in and then go to the pyramids. And you're going to go, oh, my God, how we have fallen. I mean, they're living in buildings that are dilapidated, uh, hand, hand mud brick condos. This is what they're living in. Like right now, today, in 2019, and then off in the distance, you have this, you have this Giza Plateau, which looks like an advanced piece of technology left behind. Uh, but still looks better than what they're living in. I mean, the evidence is there that further back you go. It's just, it's just incredible. I went to Cambodia, uh, and as I got to Angkor Wat, Angkor Wat is still in amazing condition to this very day. But as you travel through, it's 500 hectares of land. So I went hiking 37 miles from the jungle when I was there in 120 degree heat. So I, obviously I was very motivated to see these locations. <laughs> I would say nobody, so. Nobody really wants to do that. But uh, as I got further in time to more recent temples that were built, guess what? They were dilapidated, they were falling apart. They weren't megalithic anymore. Stones were stones that I could pick up with my own hands if I put a little effort, effort into it. Uh, so the closer I got to, to, to our current era, the worse the construction, you know, and this is what you see in Egypt as well. Brilliantly said, and that's something that is echoed by a lot of researchers now that are not quite on the fringe that of, of Billy and I, but to just, just speak about lost civilizations, you know, like Graham Hancock and Brian Forrester and Robert Schock and a lot of these other ones, they're saying, look, you can pinpoint all of these different places around the world from, you know, go from Pumapunka, go from Machu Picchu, go from all the way up through the Americas, Ushmal, 
um, right up through Machu Picchu, um, and then up through Chichen Itza. You go through all the Americas, you find the same thing. It is all this ancient, sophisticated building on the very bottom for whatever was whatever remained. And then the top is all this less sophisticated, really primitive building. And then when you take that model and you go around the world, you get to distinguish and you get to separate uh, all these different civilizations. This one came later, this one came earlier. And that's how we get to piece these pieces together. And part of that journey is then traveling around and going to see these anomalies around the world and deciding and, and, and doing research into them and figuring out, oh, okay, this is what legacy this, this piece belongs to and this is what this piece belongs to, okay? Now, where this journey is gonna take us is when you read about Thoth in, in, in Kem, one of the things you find out is he was actually, either he left or he was, some even say he was kicked out by, by Amun-Ra. Mm -hmm. and, and, but regardless of which, which you believe, he definitely left Kem and he went to create these new civilizations of Atlantis around the world. And he went to two key locations, in my opinion, that I see evidence on. And that is um, the area of the United States, Mexico, and South America. Those areas have this heavy influence of this, these builders and this rise of civilization that seems to have come out of nowhere. Um, I want to just bring up in, 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 in Puebla, Mexico, down near um, Teotihuacan and Tenochtitlan, that, that area of, of Mexico that's near Mexico City, there, um, archaeologists have done digs in some of those areas and they've found evidence that shows um, sophisticated civilizations lived there well over 100,000 years ago. So we're looking at these time periods that to completely rewrite the narrative of what we think. There may have been civilizations that were destroyed even before these. It could have been time periods where other people existed there because that's what these say. I want to bring up, um, go to that incredible Mayan temple site of Ushmal, okay? This is probably the best example I can pick out. Um, in, in the Mesoamerica, in the Mexico Mesoamerica area, showing this, what we're talking about right now. The name Ushmal means built three times, okay? And I want people to look that up because it's totally mind blowing. Is that the very name means that. And the temple there, the, the largest temple is called Temple of the Wizards. Just like, if you remember the Emerald Tablet when we read of both, he says he's the great master of mysteries and the great magician and the wizard. That's, that's what he's referenced as. And so you see these common examples and these influences all around the world of these sites where they, they traveled around and created these civilizations, right, Billy? Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're, again, you're right, man. You're, you're a great researcher, man. Uh, went to Teotihuacan, Mexico. I had the blessing to be able to go to Thoth's house, Kukulcan, whatever you want to call him. He's got a million names, as you know. But it was his house where it's still there. It's still there. He actually lived on this on site. And one thing I want to point out is a lot of uh, people might get offended by this in a way when they've learned this, but if they go research it, they'll find it is true. The Mayans did not build Teotihuacan. So that again, the Mayans did not build Teotihuacan. Where did I get this from? From a homegrown archaeologist in Teotihuacan. It's actually taught there in schools. It's actually taught there in Mexico that the Mayans did not build it, neither did the Aztecs. The Teotihuacans were there much uh, further back than the Mayans. Mayans kind of inherited what was already there and some of the wisdom and teaching that were left behind, but they didn't build it. Uh, and then uh, there was a volcanic eruption much later, a couple hundred years later, in a valley, and the Aztec people had to migrate out of that area because their whole uh, city or their, their living area was destroyed. 
and they stumbled across Teotihuacan and they inherited it as well. Okay, so this is why you have a situation where you see advanced technology, advanced building uh, techniques being used, and then you have these people that are still, uh, you know, uh, killing, killing, and cutting people's heads off and cutting their hearts out to give to the gods and sacrificing virgins and all this. Going, wait a minute, how can you be this technologically advanced, but then you're doing all these uh, sacrificial things and all sort of stuff that didn't really make any sense? It's because they were almost like a cargo cult in a way. They were trying to bring the gods back, just like you know we've done here on Earth in modern times with the people from Bikini Atoll and stuff like that. So uh, it's really amazing. I mean, these these uh these Anunnaki, Atlantean people, whatever you want to call them, they really made their way around this entire planet. They influenced so many civilizations. And when folk left out of Africa and came to uh, Mesoamerica and kickstarted the civilizations here. They built this super advanced civilization. When I went to Mexico City, there were literally hundreds of hills in Mexico City. So we're talking with the archaeologist and the driver, who's also a researcher, and he's pointing at all the hills. And he's saying, you see this hill? You see that hill? You see that hill? I'm like, yeah, what's up with all these hills? He goes, every hill is a pyramid. Underneath the street, underneath the tar, underneath everything, underneath the church. So what they did was, he said in ancient times, they blew up, not ancient times, I'm sorry, in more recent times, the Spaniards blew up the tops of the pyramids and then put churches on top of them, uh, and so Catholic churches. So unfortunately, that's what's happened. But if you were to go and dig up every one of those hills, you're going to find literally hundreds of pyramids just in that one area. So it's really amazing and astounding what was accomplished down there. Uh, and I wish I could just get in the time machine, man, and go back. But um, that that area, that whole entire region was highly sophisticated. And at Teotihuacan, Teotihuacan uh, if you really take a good look at it, really looks like an advanced spaceport to me. I can envision uh, some type of launch tower. Those the shorter platforms look like launch towers where you would put a, a vehicle up to that would just kind of sit there on the pad waiting to take off. This is my personal opinion. That's what it looks like. Uh, and then you have um, the Pyramid of the Sun and Pyramid of the Moon, which are actually fractalized pyramids. They're pyramids on top of pyramids on top of pyramids. And the Pyramid of the Sun is built on top of what? An aquifer. Just like the one in Great in Giza, and the Pyramid of the Sun has the same exact size base and is exactly 50% the height of the Pyramid of Giza. That doesn't happen by accident. That was done on purpose. You have the same again. You have the same architect then duplicating these uh this this technique over here in Mesoamerica and helping to kickstart the civilization long before the Mayans arrived. Exactly. There's a there's a certain type of signature of the size of the block ratio. It's like a 52 cubit block that is used you see the same type of building. And I know that a lot of people, like they constantly share those images of, of pyramids across the world. And they say, you know, are they connected? Are they, are they um, somehow influenced by similar places? And it's amazing to me how much of our society, because of the whole indoctrinated system of what they've been made to believe and how they don't want to be out of the mainstream, they'll choose to ignore that. They'll just say, oh, that's just a coincidence. It doesn't really matter. Because what happens when you start to dwell, delve into this is, you go down this long road of having to completely reorganize your thoughts and, and how you perceive the past. So Billy brought up some, some great, great points there, Billy. Well said is that in all of these ancient sites, whether it's Mayan or Aztec or, or um, down in throughout Peru and down in um, Miracocha's area of Pumapuku, you find that all of those ancient cultures, like you said, when you ask them, who built these structures and where they came from, they all state that they found them there and that mm -hmm. they were built by 
those their ans those 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 ancestors that they once um, revered and looked up to. And so what we think of as the Aztec, Aztec, Maya, and Inca are just these remnants of those civilizations from long ago and what's left over. And just so just imagine it, right? Instead of these cultures we perceive now, their their ancestors, instead of us perceiving them as building them, their those structures, like Billy said, imagine them just like we were when we first rediscovered these in the jungle. You know, we're emerging through the brush and we open up this scene and we see this temple out in the jungle and it's all destroyed and there's strewn everywhere and there's just pieces of it. And this culture is amazed by it. And they start poking around through the ruins and they find these ancient writings and they're reading about them and they're blown away because there's all this knowledge that completely changes. And what happened? This civilization all of a sudden becomes jump-started because they have all this knowledge and wisdom. So they try to emanate what was there before. They try to rebuild it. They try to connect with these gods because they learn through these writings. They learned that these long ago, they were influenced by, by things that are no longer there anymore, by great beings that were great builders. So what do they try to do? They try to do blood sacrifice and all these awful techniques to try to get the gods to come back because they're desperate. And that's where all this confusion comes in. It was out of corruption and desperation that a lot of those cultures did that, not because they were influenced by their original wisdom bringers to do that um and that's so those are some of the misconceptions that we we got to get past here what what this brings up and what's on the screen is what we're looking at is south america um and we're looking at andes mountains in the background and you're looking at lake titicaca which is a, an amazing amazing place the, the highest navigable lake in the world over a thousand feet deep okay which is really interesting if you start to look at the, the stories of Viracocha and how some of them claim that this great creator being came out of the depths of, of Lake Titicaca. And when you think about how the underworld and the Abzu, this lower world, is connected through these deep portals underground and caves and underwater, it starts to make sense and it makes, starts to scratch your head and wonder about the significance of what Lake Titicaca plays. But anyway, on, along the shores of Lake Titicaca, which is in Bolivia, South America, all over the place, you find these strewn ruins of ancient civilizations, Pumukuku, Iwanaku. And like Billy said, they didn't call themselves what we think they call themselves. They said that they were the, their ancestors were called um, the Tiwanakus, and some of them called themselves the Viracocians. So they, these aren't even terms that reference the Inca. They're these long ago terms that we don't even use anymore. But when we start to look at the evidence from that region to try to connect it, to say, okay, What's the evidence that actually proves that these civilizations are connected? You know, give me something out that's not just circumstantial. Well, go look up the Fuente Magna Bowl. It'll completely blow your mind. And that's what I have on the screen right now, the image. The little backstory so people know what that means is in 1958, next to Lake Titicaca, where all these ancient ruins are, look up Pumapunku, some of the strangest ruins on the entire planet. Near that same area where all that advanced technology is already from these ancient Viracocians, you find there was this there was this field that a farmer was plowing in 19 in 1958 and all of a sudden his plow hit the edge of something so he gets out and he goes down in his field and he picks up this artifact and it's this very strange bowl okay now some ex, some academics will tell you that this is all fabricated and it's not real just like a lot of this stuff we're going into to try to make people think that all of this is is just a, some fantasy and that what we're, what we're told is the correct story Whereas if you go do research, you can clearly see that all of this stuff is real and it's all just there if people know where to look. 
So this farmer finds this bowl and he picks it up and he wipes away the dirt inside and he finds these ancient inscriptions and he doesn't recognize it at all. It's not something that he's ever seen before. So he brings it into this to the some of the experts in the area and he has it sent away and they determine that it's cuneiform writing. Now, if you look at the similarities of it, you find the same etch marks and like Billy knows, they still create cuneiform today and you can see those etch marks are almost exactly mirrored, mirrored in this in, in this bowl. And, and Billy said, well, they say it's some kind of a proto um, cuneiform Sumerian writing, but what does that even matter? It's still yeah. mirrored that the same writing is connected all the way across the world, right, Billy? Absolutely. I mean, this doesn't happen by accident. There's no sense of coincidence here. This is actual uh, something that evidence of somebody teaching people in different parts of the world the same exact writing techniques with the same exact type of a stylus, the same exact type of a clay, uh, wet clay uh, system. Uh, and uh, like I said earlier, before we got on the air, was um, Mr. Finkel at the uh, British Museum is a great little video, very short video on, uh, on YouTube where he actually takes a stylus and he impresses into wet clay and begins to do the cuneiform writing. Uh, and it's very tedious to just make a one name or one word or one phrase. That's why I think that these cuneiform tablets are so important because you've got some information here. We've got millions of these tablets now that have been discovered around the world, but we've got information that somebody took their tedious time and effort to create and write and then bake and put it on in a way that it can withstand the test of time. And I think when somebody goes to that level of effort to put information out, it's well worth our research and investigation to look into it because it's like a time capsule. It was put here for us in this current era to read it, decipher it, and to realize the true history of our ancient past, what went on in the ancient past, and it's really an amazing window that's been open for us to figure out what happened back then because the past is prologue. So we can analyze this, this information from around the world, all these cuneiform tablets, these bowls, these artifacts being discovered, these megalithic structures. We can analyze all these stories from all this, these Sumerian cylinder scrolls and everything else that we've discovered now to figure out how can we prevent this from happening in the future? How can we curb this cyclical nature of, of rise and fall of civilization? Can we stop this cycle from rising and falling? Can we get to the next level, can we become a type uh, type one, type two, type three level civilization and harness the power of our star and prevent uh, galactic collisions with asteroids? I love it. Exactly, you know, so can we get to those levels? And I think what we're doing, me and you, Matt, I, I think that it's so crucial because it's like we're really the pioneers of bringing knowledge and information to the general population, which is gonna spread like wildfire and maybe, just maybe giving us an opportunity as a civilization to bypass this cycle of rise and fall and get to the next level as a civilization. Well said. And and uh, like like Billy mentioned, um, what we're trying to do right now is not just being done by so many other people. Most mainstream academics and researchers are scared to even go into this idea of trying to decipher these ancient translations and texts. And that's why if you look at almost all these researchers, they'll delve into ancient megalithic stuff, because that's that's pretty easy to see now. We, we really can know what that is. But a lot of this other stuff, because it connects to this idea of beings, entities, aliens, some kind of gods, all that stuff, it's off limits. And so most of them, because of credibility reasons and because of how controlled this information is, most aren't willing to connect those pieces. So that's why Billy and I are doing the best we can to not only preserve this ancient wisdom so it can last, test, last the test of time, but also to make sure that 
others can can understand what those teachings said and what they left behind long ago. Now, and what did they leave behind? Well, they left behind these amazing structures. And this is Saskia Human outside of um, Cusco. And I know Billy has been to this one. But when you, when you look at something like this, um, it almost seems like this technology that exists in South America is in many ways even more perfect than I've seen anywhere around the world. Like they perfected it here. And what was that some kind of a, they melt these rocks and then reform them. And that's why they have these bizarre shapes. And so what, let me get your take on some of these incredible um, structures around the world. Man, this is just amazing. I mean, even seeing this again, I was there. So, you know, it's just, a, <laughs> I'm so happy, man. You know, you know, the way that I've been able to, to live my life. I mean, I've been there. I've touched those stones right where that gentleman is standing. I've, a picture right there um and uh even the archaeologist that was there with us that we hired was saying that you know <laughs> the gods built this and i mean you still can't put a human hair between some of these blocks uh they withstood earthquakes uh you know d disasters storms everything else you could think of and they're still there and they're still rock i mean they're locked solid together and it, it almost looked like some type of uh a heating tool or a heating laser or something just molded them together but you're not going to go to a rock quarry cut rock and then bring it to a location hundreds of miles away just to make these intricate cuts you could just stack the blocks and make simple square blocks you don't need to make these intricate cuts these intricate cuts are so amazing it just it just leads you to, to believe that it's got to be some type of advanced technology something that molded and bent these rocks and glued them together in a way it's almost like they're hermetically sealed in a way i mean they're really locked together they can't you can't just like pry one of these blocks away it's not that easy uh, and the fact that we can't really duplicate this today leads us you know it just adds more credence to, to, to the fact that these people had some advanced technology whether it was a harmonic frequency tools cymatic tools um you know because because cymatics the right frequency can generate heat they use a frequency tool to to um mold these bricks together these blocks together whatever it was and also they, they designed them also in a way that they made them earthquake proof so they actually have the capability in certain areas of sliding and moving with the vibrations of the earth it's really amazing this was a great fort the top was a great uh, temple yeah. the temple it didn't it did not stand the test of time uh the walls are there but the top's missing but this is just an amazing place yeah it's now notice billy what the design of the blocks almost looks like to me it looks like a honeycomb design when you say it has oh, this yeah. type of honeycomb design and, and so what was the purpose of that right like why would you want to design them just like this with these knobs sticking out in some spots and these really strange angles and i think what you said nails it on the head i think that those were designed in a certain way to act as a harmonic frequency so that it's like a like a tuning fork things mm -hmm. So we can have a certain type of harmonic frequency because like Billy said, there was a big temple sitting up there. And so you had to create this certain kind of energy connection with that temple. And that's what it was all about back then. We find these sites when you when you look at a world map, you know, go search really quick on Google and go look up ley lines of the earth. And then go look up ley lines of the earth and the megalithic and the location of megalithic sites around the world. And boom, they line up almost perfectly. And quickly, you can see that, wow. So not only did these advanced civilizations know about that, and first of all, how did they know about the convergence of energy lines around our planet? I mean, that is almost mind-blowing for us to even consider now. 
And we're circumnavigating the globe with GPS units and compasses and everything all over the place. And yet these, these civilizations knew in many ways what we don't even know now anymore at all. They had knowledge about energy and consciousness and the cosmos that we're, we're just starting to piece together and get back today. But this legacy all around the world, you can really see it and you can really see how what happened? Well, there were these lost civilizations after Atlantis that spread around the world, and then these destructive events occurred that ended the last ice age. That is the most key point I want to leave behind. These events are what ended the ice age. They're not just coinciding with the end of the ice age. There was a, a massive ice age. For those who don't know, where I am, Laurentide ice sheet, miles deep. I mean, if you were to try to put, try to envision something like the Empire State Building or any of these large buildings around the world, I wouldn't even come close to the depth of this ice. So if you had ice ages covering the world, and then those ice ages, those, that ice rapidly melts, and you get these global tectonic shifts and earthquakes and tsunamis and sun coming in on coral mass ejections and like burning structures and causing vitrification on it. When you're seeing all that evidence around the world, it paints this picture of these cataclysms that were so disastrous they're like something out of some hollywood movie we can't even imagine today because they were so so um severe they wiped out all of these civilizations around the world to my gift the key of life free was i of the halls of menti bound not by death to the circle of life far to the stars i journey until space and time became the north then having drunk deep of the cup of wisdom I looked into the hearts of men, and there I found the great mysteries and was glad. For only in the search for truth could my soul be stilled, with the flame within be quenched. Down through the ages I, I lived, seeing those around me taste of the cup of death and return again into the light of life. Amazing. It's, it's so powerful, Billy. Um, I want to just put my thoughts on that um, for, for a second, and then I want you to chime in, and we'll just talk mm -hmm. about this for a minute. So to start, this what you just what you just heard is part of tablet number one that was handed down as part of the Emerald Tablets of this ancient wisdom. Now this wasn't being read, as you can tell, in Atlantis. It was being read in Egypt because he he talks about the men of Kem in it. That means that when Atlantis was being destroyed, both and his trusty um, masons and priests and those who were around him, they all fled Atlantis. This island subcontinent that was considered this principal island subcontinent of seven circular islands with this large central landmass mass in the middle called Undal, okay? And the, and the central city on Undal was known as Kior. And that's where Thoth says he was, he was born in this life. And, he, and then he was raised until he became uh, a very wise priest. And so they, they fled Atlantis to create this new civilization in Egypt. And that's where he was essentially is reading and providing this knowledge to the men of Kemp. What I want to just bring up that I want you to talk about, Billy, that's amazing, is he talked about he talked about how there was this connection that existed within these temples to these children of light with the children of men. And that only through these temples could they acquire this connection to essentially speak to the gods. So the Emerald Tablets is talking about how in Atlantis, these great priests in these temples basically had a connection to the gods, right? Yeah, I mean, they literally are talking now. These gods m might be these much more progenitor level uh, gods, 
uh, or maybe these uh, could be even people from or entities from another dimension that we're interacting with them, maybe even passing them knowledge. I mean, there's so much <laughs> that we just don't know. But uh, through these temples and even like in the homes of Lamenti, those would appear there and disappear from there. So uh, they could be uh, using these temples uh, inside of them at some point. There could be portals to other dimensions where they go before these and gods or before these uh, other entities to get knowledge and information and esoteric wisdom. Yeah, and he calls them cycle masters. He's, and he says in several occasions that he met some of these cycle masters. And in some of the other tablets, one of the things I find amazing is that he mentions how he was shown um, chaos that exists beyond our physical dimension and how mm -hmm. be, that there are these great masters that prevent all this darkness and evil from, from entering in. And that over time, some of those great masters um, are, were no longer present anymore to defend that. And that could be one of the reasons why so much darkness and evil was allowed into our realm is that these great protectors, these great priests, you know, these great um, men who would sit up on mountaintops and command their vibrational frequency into the universe, they were protecting this realm from evil. And they, those men only don't exist in the same capacity they used to anymore. And so that's why this torch he mentions that's being passed down to then allow others to find truth is, is being given to us. Right, absolutely. And if you listen to what you just said, it's a perfect description of uh, Doctor Strange, the movie Doctor Strange, right. uh, where they were, it's the same exact story. I think they copied it from the Animal Tablets, to be quite honest with you. The fact that they had to have these cycle masters and they had to be to, to, to uh, ward off evil from attacking and destroying the planet and so forth, but some leaked in. It's the same story as the Animal Tablets. They made it into a box office movie. It's right. And so you, you, you tend to see when you, when you review all this stuff and you go back and look at other movies and things, it all starts to make sense. And it really starts to blow your mind when you mm -hmm. can put all this together into a place where you can say, wow, this stuff is real. And look, it's all around me. I just didn't notice it because I hadn't actually put those pieces together in like a chronological order based on the evidence. Because right. you can't just listen to what Billy and I are saying. You got to go look at this stuff yourself. Go read the Emerald Tablets. Go see some of this wisdom ponder on its mysteries and decide for yourself what's real and what might just be an illusion. Mm -hmm. and, 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 that, and that's where we move to understanding, well, what happened next? So Atlantis was destroyed. And while it was being destroyed, both and his, his trusted priests and masons, they left and they founded this civilization we know of as Kem in Egypt. And this is, and Fulf says in that, that he was the great builder of these pyramids and that this was supposed to be a civilization that was arise to be in the image of Atlantis, right? Just like some other places mm -hmm. you're kind of going to too. Yep. But, but Billy, talk about some of the ancient technology and some of the mysteries mm. we find from some of this lost Atlanteans um, yeah. that came and parted there, right? I'll tell you, it's amazing. I mean, the evidence there is just mind-blowing. Going to Egypt, I spent a lot of time there. Thankfully, I was able to do that. I was blessed to be able to do that uh, and to, you know, go to almost every major temple in Egypt, had to get on a plane three times to fly to different areas to get out to these places, drive through the middle of the desert for hours to get to temples. And um, one thing you notice that is consistent, megalithic blocks, no mortar, uh, impossible cornering into brick masonry, uh, magnetic granite. You know, this is all there. It's everywhere you go. And it points to the one architect. You know, and, and as you look around the planet, you see the same exact type of architecture, but again, points to one main architect. One person laid out this plan and said, look, this is the design plan. 
unduplicated everywhere. That's how it was done. Uh, but what's really amazing is that the Great Pyramid at Giza, uh, the way that the structure is set up, you can just see the resonating energy and power from it. I had the, I had the, uh, the, the blessing to be able to go to some of the underground tunnels there. And that area used to be flooded with an aquifer in some of those parts. And an aquifer would allow physiostatic electricity to be transmitted up into the base of the Great Pyramid. And from there, it would be shot up into the the grand gallery, which probably had resonating chambers in it, or resonating rods, that would then fire that, both that power up into the king's chamber, which I had the blessing of going into. Uh, and then I believe, personally, that the Ark of the Covenant used to sit inside that box that they try to call a sarcophagus. It's the perfect, it's the same exact dimensions as the Ark of the Covenant. And that would interact with this Ark, and that would create some type of a master spark, which then would be shot through the apex. Uh, and I believe that the Great Pyramid was a multifunctional stone, or is still a multifunctional stone computer, kind of now partly broken because the cap has been taken off and some of the technology has been taken out. But it, it, it operated as a wireless um, uh, generator, wireless power generator. It operated as a portal generator. Uh, it operated as a stabilizer because the Great Pyramid is directly at the center of the mass of the Earth. Not the center of the Earth, the center of land mass of the Earth. It's located directly on that spot. Uh, it also to me was a communication device with the uh, shafts reach out to the Orion and the Sirius. I believe that those were, uh, they had a capability of sending some type of a subspace frequency to those star systems to communicate back and forth. Uh, you know, so it's just, it's just amazing. And then when you take a look at the Giza Plateau itself, I have a video on my YouTube channel about it. The temples and the pyramids are located. You can actually create a circular grid based off of the alignments you get an exact alignment from the NASA inter or interplanetary star system, an interplanetary system around our star, and overlay it onto the uh, grid map of the Giza Plateau with the temples and the, and the pyramids, and you get a perfect match. So it, the, the, the Giza Plateau is a map of the interplanet star, uh, inner planets of our solar system close to our sun. I'm talking about Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Those four and our sun are mapped out right there at Giza on the plateau. Amazing. Amazing. Basically, we're looking at a lost civilization with technology that was existing and it's now just these remnants and pieces that are left. And, yeah. it, and what Billy said is, is, is spot on is that here we have these structures that we've been told how we're housing pharaohs. And that's what everyone is told in school. And that's how they perceive the purpose of all these structures. Okay, yeah, they wanted to be remembered in the future. So they buried them there. And then, oh, look, that's their tomb. Yeah. Whereas when, when people, you know, that's, that's what we, we're, we're dealing with here is that there's a paradigm that's been created about ancient history and about our origins, and about everything we perceive in reality to, to create this certain doctrine here of, of what we think and what we follow. Whereas when you start looking at the evidence from the Great Pyramids, you, like Billy said, you look at the Great Pyramid Giza and you say, there's never been a pharaoh ever found there. And there's not even ever been any hieroglyphs inside. In fact, there's all this strange technology with these chambers pointing at different star systems and water being utilized underneath and all these secret tunnels connecting all mm -hmm. these specific points. And quickly you get, to, you get to realize, oh, wow. So this is, this is not a tomb at all. Then you factor in things like the fact that this is located right in the very center of the land masses of the earth and that it's on these important ley lines, these convergence centers of energy just like all the other structures all around the world that we're about to go over in a few minutes, you get to see that there was this giant grid system created here. This giant grid system created here, harnessing electromagnetic energy. 
and that these these sophisticated cultures were likely like billy said they may have been connected to all over the stars we don't know how advanced the civilization was because the destruction that destroyed it was so severe that all that was literally all that was left of these civilizations are these megalithic structures they created and some of the stories and writings that were left behind we carried on in the future everything else that existed was either buried or destroyed over time and so that's what we're trying to put these clues and pieces together to these lost civilizations in human history that connect all the way back to human origins but that story does not end in egypt it does not end in chem because we have to understand that egypt the name itself is a name that came later and i want to point out and i've mentioned it many times is that we see a distinct difference in the sophistication and building of a lot of this advanced technology in Egypt, along with some later building of dynastic pharaohs, and I want to point that out. So when you go to a place like Karnak, and you have a you have these large blocks of things like travertine, and you can't find travertine more than a thousand miles away in Turkey, and you have these huge granite blocks like above the tomb of Osiris, which is not a real tomb at all. It's more of a physical, uh, a non-physical um, energy reincarnation tomb for a great being Osiris that I believe was connected to Enki. But anyway, when you start to look at that, distinct time periods occurred with these different civilizations that then passed down knowledge to the next one that came. And then over time, every single time one of these civilizations came later, more and more knowledge was lost. And then before you know it, we lump them all together as just one civilization. And, and that's where a lot of this confusion comes in, right, Billy? Well, absolutely. I mean, you hit it right on the head. I mean, literally what's happened is every time you move to another generation or another dynastic era, the, the technology gets worse, the construction gets worse. That's a video that I had made, I guess, with some other guys on YouTube where they, they kind of gave me an impromptu interview. And I had said, I told them that the further back you go, the more perfect the construction, and the closer you come to forward in time, the worse the construction. And I've seen That's this. The opposite we've been told, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how could that be? It's more. How could it be perfect in the past, in the deep antiquity, and then be worse in the current day? Uh, and anybody who doesn't believe this, you just need to do one thing: save up your money, fly to Egypt, land in Cairo, and look how the people live. Look at the buildings that they're living in, and then go to the pyramids, and you're going to go, "Oh my God, how we have fallen." I mean, they're living in buildings that are dilapidated, uh, hand hand mud brick condos. This is what they're living in, like right now today in 2019. And then off in the distance, you have this you have this Giza plateau, which looks like an advanced piece of technology left behind, uh, but still looks better than what they're living in. I mean, the evidence is there that further back you go, it's just it's just incredible. I went to Cambodia, uh, and as I got to Angkor Wat, Angkor Wat is still in amazing condition to this very day. But as you travel through, it's 500 hectares of land. So I went hiking 37 miles through the jungle when I was there in 120 degree heat. So I, obviously I was very motivated to see these locations. <laughs> I would say nobody, so. Nobody really wants to do that. But uh, as I got further in time to more recent temples that were built, guess what? They were dilapidated, they were falling apart. They weren't megalithic anymore. The stones were stones that I could pick up with my own hands if I put a little effort, effort into it. Uh, so the closer I got to, to, to our current era, the worse the construction, you know, and this is what you see in Egypt as well. Brilliantly said, and that's something that is echoed by a lot of researchers now, 
that are not quite on the fringe that of, of Billy and I, but that just just speak about lost civilizations, you know, like Graham Hancock and Brian Forrester and Robert Schock and a lot of these other ones, they're saying, look, you can pinpoint all of these different places around the world from, you know, go from Pumapunka, go from Machu Picchu, go from all the way up through the Americas, Ushmal, um, right up through Machu Picchu, um, and then up through Chichen Itza. You go through all the Americas, you find the same thing. It is all this ancient, sophisticated building on the very bottom for whatever was whatever remained. And then the top is all this less sophisticated, really primitive building. And then when you take that model and you go around the world, you get to distinguish and you get to separate uh, all these different civilizations. This one came later. This one came earlier. And that's how we get to piece these pieces together. And part of that journey is then traveling around and going to see these anomalies around the world and deciding and, and, and doing research into them and figuring out, oh, okay, this is what legacy this, this piece belongs to and this is what this piece belongs to, okay? Now, where this journey is going to take us is when you read about Thoth in, in, in Kemp, one of the things you find out is he was actually, either he left or he was, some even say he was kicked out by, by Amun-Ra. Mm -hmm. and, and, but regardless of which, which you believe, he definitely left Kem and he went to create these new civilizations of Atlantis around the world. And he went to two key locations, in my opinion, that I see evidence on. And that is um, the area of the United States, Mexico, and South America. Those areas have this heavy influence of this, these builders and this rise of civilization that seems to have come out of nowhere. Um, I want to just bring up in, 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 in Puebla, Mexico, down near um, Teotihuacan and Tenochtitlan, that, that area of, of Mexico that's near Mexico City, there, um, archaeologists have done digs in some of those areas and they've found evidence that shows um, sophisticated civilizations lived there well over 100,000 years ago. So we're looking at these time periods that completely rewrite the narrative of what we think. There may have been civilizations that were destroyed even before these. There could have been time periods where other people existed there because that's what these say. I want to bring up, um, go to that incredible Mayan temple site of Ushmal, okay? This is probably the best example I can pick out. Um, in, in the Mesoamerica, in the Mexico, Mesoamerica area, showing this, what we're talking about right now. The name Ushmal means built three times, okay? And I want people to look that up because it's totally mind-blowing, is that the very name means that. And the temple there, the, the largest temple, is called Temple of the Wizards. Just like, if you remember the Emerald Tablet when we read of Thoth, he says he's the great master of mysteries and the great magician and the wizard. That's, that's what he's referenced as. Mm -hmm. And so you see these common examples and these influences all around the world of these sites where they, they travel around and created these civilizations, right, Billy? Absolutely. I mean, you, you, again, you're right, man. You're, you're a great researcher, man. Uh, went to Teotihuacan, Mexico. I had the blessing to be able to go to Thoth's house, Kukulcan, whatever you want to call him. He's got a million names, as you know. It was his house where it's still there. It's still there. He actually lived on this on site. And one thing I want to point out is a lot of um, people might get offended by this in a way when they've learned this, but if they go research it, I find it is true. The Mayans did not build Teotihuacan. So that again, the Mayans did not build Teotihuacan. And where did I get this from? From a homegrown archaeologist in Teotihuacan. <laughs> it's actually taught there in schools. It's actually taught there in Mexico that the Mayans did not build it, neither did the Aztecs. Teotihuacans were there much 
uh, further back than the Mayans. Mayans kind of inherited what was already there and some of the wisdom and teaching that were left behind, but they didn't build it. Uh, and then uh, there was a volcanic eruption much later, a couple hundred years later, in a valley, and the Aztec people had to migrate out of that area because their whole uh, city or their, where their living area was destroyed, and they stumbled across Teotihuacan, and they inherited it as well. Okay, so this is why you have a situation where you see advanced technology, advanced building uh, techniques being used, and then you have these people that are still, uh, you know, uh, killing, killing and cutting people's heads off and cutting their hearts out to give to the gods and sacrificing virgins and all this, going, wait a minute, how can you be this technologically advanced, but then you're doing all these uh, sacrificial things and all this other stuff that didn't really make any sense? It's because they were almost like a cargo cult in a way. They were trying to bring the gods back, just like, you know, we've done here on Earth in modern times with the people from Bikini Atoll and stuff like that. So uh, it's really amazing. I mean, these these uh these Anunnaki, Atlantean people, whatever you want to call them, they really made their way around this entire planet. They influenced so many civilizations. And when Thoth left out of Africa and came to uh, Mesoamerica and kickstarted the civilizations here, they built this super advanced civilization. When I went to Mexico City, there were literally hundreds of hills in Mexico City. So we're talking with the archaeologist and the driver, who's also a researcher. And he's pointing at all the hills. And he's saying, you see this hill? You see that hill? You see that hill? I'm like, yeah, what's up with all these hills? He goes, every hill is a pyramid. Underneath the street, underneath the tar, underneath everything, underneath the church. So what they did was, he said in ancient times, they blew up, not ancient times, sorry, in more recent times, the Spaniards blew up the tops of the pyramids and then put churches on top of them. Uh, and so Catholic churches. So unfortunately, that's what's happened. But if you were to go and dig up every one of those hills, you're going to find literally hundreds of pyramids just in that one area. So it's really amazing and astounding what was accomplished down there. Uh, and I wish I could just get in the time machine, man, and go back. But um, that, that area, that whole entire region was highly sophisticated. And at Teotihuacan, Teotihuacan uh, if you really take a good look at it, it really looks like an advanced spaceport to me. I can envision uh, some type of launch tower where you would put a, a vehicle up to that would just kind of sit there on a pad waiting to take off. Just in my personal opinion, that's what it looks like. Uh, and then you have um, the Pyramid of the Sun and Pyramid of the Moon, which are actually fractalized pyramids. They're pyramids on top of pyramids on top of pyramids. And the Pyramid of the Sun is built on top of what? An aquifer, just like the one in Great in Giza. And the Pyramid of the Sun has the same exact size base and is exactly 50% the height of the Pyramid of Giza. That doesn't happen by accident. That was done on purpose. You have the same, again, you have the same architect then duplicating these, uh, this, this technique over here in Mesoamerica and helping to kickstart the civilization long before the Mayans arrived. Exactly. There's a, there's a certain type of signature of the size of the block ratio. It's like a 52 cubit block that is used. You see the same type of building. And I know that a lot of people, like they constantly share those images of, of pyramids across the world. And they say, you know, they connected, they are they um, somehow influenced by similar places of our society because of the whole indoctrinated system of what they've been made to believe and how they don't want to be out of the mainstream. They'll choose to ignore that. They'll just say, oh, that's just a coincidence. It doesn't really matter. Because what happens when you start to dwell, delve into this is you go down this long road of having to completely reorganize your thoughts and, and how you perceive the past. So Billy brought up some, some great, great points there, Billy. Well said is that 
in all of these ancient sites, whether it's Mayan or Aztec or, or um, down in throughout Peru and down in um, Miracocha's area of um, Kumapuku, you find that all of those ancient cultures, like you said, when you ask them who built these structures and where they came from, they all state that they found them there and that mm -hmm. they were built by those their ans those 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 ancestors that they once um, revered and looked up to. And so what we think of as the Aztec, Aztec, Maya, and Inca are just these remnants of those civilizations from long ago and what's left over. And just, so just imagine it, right? Instead of these cultures we perceive now, their, their ancestors, instead of us perceiving them as building them, those structures, like Billy said, imagine them just like we were when we first <laughs> rediscovered these in the jungle. You know, we're emerging through the brush and we open up this scene and we see this temple out in the jungle and it's all destroyed and there's strewn everywhere and there's just pieces of it. And this culture is amazed by it and they start poking around through the ruins and they find these ancient writings and they're reading about them and they're blown away because there's all this knowledge that completely changes. And what happened? This civilization all of a sudden becomes jump-started because they have all this knowledge and wisdom. So mm -hmm. they try to emanate what was there before. They try to rebuild it. They try to connect with these gods because they learn through these writings. They learned that these long ago, they were influenced by, by things that are no longer there anymore, by great beings that were great builders. So what do they try to do? They try to do blood sacrifice and all these awful techniques to try to get the gods to come back because they're desperate. And that's where all this confusion comes in. Mm -hmm. It was out of corruption and desperation that a lot of those cultures did that, not because they were influenced by their original wisdom bringers to do that. Um, and that's, so those are some of the misconceptions that we, we got to get past here. What, what this brings up, what's on the screen is what we're looking at is South America. Um, and we're looking at Andes Mountains in the background. And you're looking at Lake Titicaca, which is a, an amazing, amazing place. The, the highest navigable lake in the world over a thousand feet deep, okay? Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting if you start to look at the, the stories of Viracocha and how some of them claim that this great creator being came out of the depths of, of Lake Titicaca. And when you think about how the underworld and the Abzu, this lower world is connected through these deep portals underground and caves and underwater. It starts to make sense and it starts to scratch your head and wonder about the significance of what Lake Titicaca plays. Well, anyway, on along the shores of Lake Titicaca, which is in Bolivia, South America, all over the place you find these strewn ruins of ancient civilizations, Umupuku, Iwanaku. And like Billy said, they didn't call themselves what we think they call themselves. They said that they were the, their ancestors were called um, the Tiwanakus, and mm -hmm. some of them called themselves the Viracocians. So th these aren't even terms that reference the Inca. They're these long ago terms that we don't even use anymore. Uh, when we start to look at the evidence from that region to try to connect it, to say, okay, what's the evidence that actually proves that these civilizations are connected? You know, give me something out that's not just circumstantial. We'll go look up the Fuente Magna Bowl. It'll completely blow your mind. And that's what I have on the screen right now, the image. So a little backstory so people know what that means is in 1958, next to Lake Titicaca, where all these ancient ruins are, look up Kumukunku, some of the strangest ruins on the entire planet. Near that same area where all that advanced technology is already from these ancient Viracocians, you find there was this there was this field that a farmer was plowing in, 19, in 1958. And all of a sudden his plow hit the edge of something. So he gets out and he goes down in his field and he picks up this artifact. And it's this very strange bowl, okay? 
Now, some ex some academics will tell you that this is all fabricated and it's not real. Just like a lot of this stuff we're going into to try to make people think that all of this is is just a, some fantasy and that what we're, what we're told is the correct story. Whereas if you go do research, you can clearly see that all of this stuff is real and it's all just there if people know where to look. So this farmer finds his bowl and he picks it up and he wipes away the dirt inside and he finds these ancient inscriptions and he doesn't recognize it at all. It's not something he's ever seen before. So he brings it into the, to the, some of the experts in the area and he has it sent away and they determine that it's cuneiform writing. Now, if you look at the similarities of it, you find the same etch marks. And like Billy knows, they still create cuneiform today. And you can see those etch marks are almost exactly mirrored, mirrored in, this, in, in this bowl. And, and Billy said, well, they say it's some kind of a proto um, cuneiform Sumerian writing. But what does that even matter? It still means yeah. <laughs> that the same writing is connected all the way across the world, right, Billy? Absolutely. I mean, this doesn't happen by accident. There's no sense of coincidence here. This is actual uh, something that evidence of somebody teaching people in different parts of the world the same exact writing techniques with the same exact type of a stylus, the same exact type of a clay, uh, wet clay uh, system. Uh, and uh, like I said earlier, before we got on the air, was um, Mr. Finkel at the uh, British Museum. There's a great little video, very short video on, uh, on YouTube where he actually takes a stylus and he impresses into wet clay and begins to do the cuneiform writing. Uh, and it's very tedious to just make a one name or one word or one phrase. That's why I think that these cuneiform tablets are so important because you've got some information here. We've got millions of these tablets now that have been discovered around the world. But we've got information that somebody took their tedious time and effort to create and write and then bake and put it on in a way that it can withstand the test of time. I think when somebody goes to that level of effort to put information out, it's well worth our research and investigation to look into it because it's like a time capsule. It was yeah. put here for us in this current era to read it, decipher it, and to realize the true history of our ancient past, what went on the, in the ancient past. And it's really an amazing window that's been opened for us to figure out what happened back then because the past is prologue. So we can analyze this, this information from around the world, all these cuneiform tablets, these bowls, these artifacts being discovered, these megalithic structures. We can analyze all these stories from all this, these Sumerian cylinder scrolls and everything else that we've discovered now and figure out how can we prevent this from happening in the future? How can we curb this cyclical nature of, of rise and fall of civilization? Can we stop this cycle from rising and falling? Can we get to the next level? Can we become a type, a type one, type two, type three level civilization and harness the power of our star and prevent uh, galactic collisions with asteroids. And love it. Exactly. You know, so can we get to those levels? And I think what we're doing, me and you, Matt, I think that it's so crucial because it's like we're really the pioneers of bringing knowledge and information to general population, which is going to spread like wildfire and maybe, just maybe, giving us an opportunity as a civilization to bypass this cycle of rise and fall and get to the next level as a civilization. Well said. And and uh, like, like Billy mentioned, um, what we're trying to do right now is not just being done by so many other people. Most mainstream academics and researchers are scared to even go into this idea of trying to decipher these ancient translations and texts. And that's why if you look at almost all these researchers, they'll delve into ancient megalithic stuff because that's, that's pretty easy to see now. We, we really can know what that is. But a lot of this other stuff, because it connects to this idea of beings, entities, aliens, 
some kind of gods, all that stuff, it's off limits. And so most of them, because of credibility reasons and because of how controlled this information is, most aren't willing to connect those pieces. So that's why Billy and I are doing the best we can to not only preserve this ancient wisdom so it can last, test, last the test of time, but also to make sure that others can, can understand what those teachings said and what they left behind long ago. Now, and what did they leave behind? Well, they left behind these amazing structures. And this is Saskatchewan outside of um, Cusco. And I know Billy has been to this one. But when you, when you look at something like this, um, it almost seems like this technology that exists in South America is in many ways even more perfect than I've seen anywhere around the world. Like they perfected it here. And what was that some kind of a, they melt these rocks and then reform them. And that's why they have these bizarre shapes. And so what, let me get your take on some of these incredible um, structures around the world. Man, this is just amazing. I mean, even seeing this again, I was there. So, you know, it's just, a, <laughs> I'm so happy, man. You know, you know, the way that I've been able to, to live my life. I mean, I've been there. I've touched those stones right where that gentleman is standing. I've, a picture right there um and uh even the archaeologist that was there with us that we hired was saying that you know <laughs> the gods built this and i mean you still can't put a human hair in between some of these blocks uh they withstood earthquakes uh you know disasters storms everything else you could think of and they're still there and they're still rock i mean they're locked solid together and it, it almost looked like some type of a a heating tool or a heating laser or something just molded them together. But you're not going to go to a rock quarry, cut rock, and then bring it to a location hundreds of miles away just to make these intricate cuts. You could just stack the blocks and make simple square blocks. You don't need to make these intricate cuts. These intricate cuts are so amazing. It just, it just leads you to, to believe that it's got to be some type of advanced technology, something that molded and bent these rocks and glued them together in a way, it's almost like they're hermetically sealed in a way. I mean, they're yeah. really locked together. They can't, you can't just like pry one of these blocks away. It's not that easy. Uh, and the fact that we can't really duplicate this today, it leads us, you know, it just adds more credence to, to, to the fact that these people had some advanced technology, whether it was a harmonic frequency yeah. tools, cymatic tools, um, you know, because cymatics, the right frequency can generate heat. They use a frequency tool to, to, um, to mold these bricks together, these blocks together, whatever it was. And also, they, they designed them also in a way that they made them earthquake proof, so they actually have the capability in certain areas of sliding and moving with the vibrations of the earth. Just really amazing. This was a great fort. The top was a great uh, temple. Yeah. The temple that didn't, did not stand the test of time. Uh, the walls are there, but the top's missing. But this is just an amazing place. Yeah. And, and now, notice, Billy what the design of the blocks almost looks like. To me, it looks like a honeycomb design, wouldn't you say? It has oh, the yeah. type of honeycomb design. And, and so what was the purpose of that, right? Like, why would you want to design them just like this with these knobs sticking out in some spots and these really strange angles? And I think what you said nails it on the head. I think that those were designed in a certain way to act as a harmonic frequency so that it's like a, like a tuning fork. Mm -hmm. Things. And so we can have a certain type of harmonic frequency because like Billy said, there was a big temple sitting up there. And so you had to create this certain kind of energy connection with that temple. And that's what it was all about back then. We yeah. find these sites when you, when you look at a world map, you know, go search really quick on Google and go look up ley lines of the earth and then go look up ley lines of the earth and the, and the location of megalithic sites around the world. 
boom, they line up almost perfectly. And quickly you can see that, wow. So not only did these advanced civilizations know about that, and first of all, how did they know about the convergence of energy lines around our planet? I mean, that is almost mind blowing for us to even consider now. We're circumnavigating the globe with GPS units and compasses and everything all over the place. And yet these, these civilizations knew in many ways what we don't even know now anymore at all. They had knowledge about energy and consciousness and the cosmos that we're, we're just starting to piece together and get back today. This legacy all around the world, you can really see it and you can really see how what happened. Well, there were these lost civilizations after Atlantis that spread around the world. And then these destructive events occurred that ended the last ice age. That is the most key point I want to leave behind. These events are what ended the ice age. They're not just coinciding with the end of the ice age. There was a, a massive ice age. For those who don't know, where I am, Laurentide ice sheet miles deep i mean if you were to try to put try to envision something like the empire state building or any of these large buildings around the world i wouldn't even come close to the depth of this ice so if you had ice ages covering the world and then those ice ages those that ice rapidly melts and you get these global tectonic shifts and earthquakes and tsunamis and sun coming in on coral mass ejections and like burning structures and causing vitrification on it when you're seeing all that evidence around the world, it paints this picture of these cataclysms that were so disastrous. They're like something out of some Hollywood movie. We can't even imagine today because they were so, so um, severe. They wiped out all of these civilizations around the world to where I think that there was only a few elders that remained. And they, those elders tried to jumpstart civilization in other places. But over time, that was unsuccessful. And eventually, we, we almost went back to the Stone Age, basically, right, Billy? Absolutely, that's right. That's exactly what happened. We literally uh, had lost all of the knowledge, all the wisdom. Uh, the, the, uh, the verbal history uh, had been passed down. But as you go through, you know, user, utilizing verbal history and passing that down generations, you begin to lose uh, some of the information over time. So generation after generation, it became less and less important. Survival became more important. Uh, and just like today, we all use cell phones. I use a cell phone, you use a cell phone. But if civilization was to collapse right now, uh, I don't know how to make a cell phone. You know, so I know some of the parts work, but I don't know how to actually physically make a cell phone and rebuild the towers to make the cell phones communicate the microwave signals and so forth. It's a lot of collaboration to get all that back up. So when something collapses like that, even if you have a few wise people, it's not just like, well, they knew about it. How can we can't kickstart it again? Well, it takes a lot of collaboration and a lot of people knowing little different parts and working together to rebuild a high level of civilization. It's just typically can't be done with two or three wise men. You got to have quite a quite a bit of people on the same level and working together in unison. Uh, but but survival took hold and you know it became a priority. Information just became you know that type of knowledge became less and less important as people were just trying to make it through the day. Yeah, and so you so if you, you can imagine back then, those original builders, maybe they returned to some of those civilizations after, and they try to impart that wisdom again, and then, but then they leave and they move on somewhere else. And so over time, maybe you, you would see, like we see with this building, you would see it blossoming for a short period of time where they would try to restart that civilization and reach that sophistication. Then without guidance, without those teachers around, that civilization would end up becoming corrupted and would fall down into these 
lower moral codes of blood sacrifice and war and all these things we find today, which is actually echoed even in our civilization now, seems like there's this eventual downfall of situations, civilizations where they often become corrupted. They're not given guidance and wisdom to um, follow a certain path. And so we're moving to the last location today on our journey. And this is what I consider the very heart of the Aztec empire, okay? This is Teotihuacan, and this is uh, an ancient Aztec city, which, and like Billy mentioned, if you go around the world, okay, to any of these megalithic sites, one of the common things you find is that their largest pyramids are almost always named the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon, which is fascinating because yet again provides this connection with, with how they thought back then and, and the purpose behind why they were building the structures. I mean, this, this, this area that you have is literally what was attempted to try to create a new Atlantis. One, what's some of the evidence to back that up? Right next to this site, is a place called Tula, Mexico, where you have these massive statues of these huge guards, and they're called the Atlantean warriors. And I bring that up every time because they're specifically called that as part of the ancient wisdom. That's not a name that was given to them later, but it proves to you, shows that that was the whole purpose, was they were trying to create these new Atlantean civilizations, and that those pieces, whether you want to talk about the Olmec, whether you want to talk about the Aztec, the Maya, the Inca, the Viracocians, and many, many other branches of that, they're all just this part of this lost history that we're just trying to put the pieces back together today, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Thoth came here. Uh, his name changed many times while he was in Mesoamerica. I mean, you know, he's been everybody. Kukukon, Quetzalcoatl, Viracocha. He might have even been Lord Pakal. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Right. And I've been to Tula, Mexico. I've been to the Atlantean statues, took pictures next to them, and they're holding technology in their hands. They've got on what looked like to be some type of sophisticated suit or outfit with, with uh, uh, what looks like a, uh, a container or something on the chest and on the back. And handbags, right? They have the handbags. Yep. Some of them look like they're holding, might be even holding a weapon in a way, the way it's, they're set up. I'm going to show I'm going to send you my photos. It's really amazing stuff. But, um, been to, to, to Tula at the top of the Pyramid of Kukulkan there. I've been to, uh, uh, right down from there, I went to this other place called Kukawamilpa, uh, Kakawamilpa. It's a very strange name. It's a mountain there. And they take you on a tour inside this mountain. And you go, we went down about, uh, uh, man, maybe uh, two kilometers. And about 90 meters up from the floor, I took a video of a Egyptian head carved into the inside of this mountain on the inside of this uh, cave that we, this gigantic cave system we were in. And the cave just kept going. Uh, but in there, it's carved in a way, again, using highly advanced technology. And somebody in ancient times was utilize, utilizing that cave as a kingdom. You can tell by the way it's set up. Uh, the, the strange thing though, is the further you go, the less oxygen you get, and it just kept on going. I mean, it kept going and going and going. And you had to, all the tourists had to loop around because uh, the oxygen becomes more thin down there. You can't, you know, somebody's going to start passing out. But down there is evidence of advanced technology. I wish I could have kept going with some oxygen masks on just to see how far I can go and really tap into some stuff that they probably didn't cover up. They didn't take down that one Egyptian uh, motif, that Egyptian head sticking out of the, out of the uh, inside of the cave up there. This whole area is full of nothing but amazing things. Just looking at this image you have on the screen now, like I said before, and I was talking earlier, these look like launch pads to me. 
I mean, just to me, I could be wrong, but they kind of resemble launch pads. I've climbed up on top of these structures in front of the Pyramid of the Sun, uh, right along the Avenue of the Dead. And uh, I have videos of me on Facebook on top of these structures and everything else. And they really look like um, something would mount up to them and be like they were there to hold something. And then people would walk up these stairs to get into whatever that thing was in ancient times. Another thing that's amazing is this entire place is connected by these underground tunnels. They're not really tunnels. They're really carved uh, pathways in the shape of a perfect square almost. And inside of them, they discovered tons of mica. Now, mica is a technological purpose, uh, is technologically used for the purpose of insulation in modern times. They found tons of insulation underneath this pyramidal structure here at Teotihuacan. Um, that connected the pyramids together and all the structures together. Uh, and to me, it lends to me evidence that there may have been some type of electricity flowing through this underground tunnel system. Those tunnels, the way that they're cut so perfectly and geometrically shaped, to me, lends credibility to the fact that they may have been more technological. Yeah, I, I definitely you agree. Know? Yeah, You see that mica and you find... Um, that they were using that as like a technology means, not like we use it today. All those were used to focus energy or mm-hmm. use these as some kind of energy, some kind of a temple that would have a certain harmonic frequency. It, it's basically just lost technology that we're trying to figure out today and trying to yep. wrap our heads around. But I want to just bring something up at the end of this that I think is, is pretty amazing is that those Atlantean warriors, those statues that, that, that are standing there in, in Tula, Mexico, Mm-hmm. Um, probably another piece of evidence that I want to I want to bring up that I think is the probably the biggest one of all that connects all of this. And probably the best piece of evidence of all is that that handbag design that you find in the Olmec, okay, and in those in those Atlantean warriors in Tula, in different locations in Mexico, okay, you see that handbag design. You find that handbag design also in South America. You find that handbag design all throughout um, Mesopotamia through um, all the ancient world and these ancient civilizations. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in Gobekli Tepe, you found that you find those same handbags on the T-shaped um, pillars they have. And what is that, right? In the stage of yeah. time, I talked about that and I really laid that out and I showed some pictures and examples. In my personal opinion, I think that the handbags represented this passing along of knowledge and technology where a, a bag is, 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 a, is a symbolic way to represent something that holds something something that carries something to be passed on. So when you, when you have, and they show different groups of them too. And I think those all might have little meanings too and how many of them they show next to each other. But the fact is that handbag design has been seen in each of these megalithic ancient civilization areas all over the world. And I yeah. think those are what link this influence of these ancestors that traveled around and gave them all that technology. Handbags are showing they provided all of this sophistication and wisdom and they passed it on to them and then created all these grand civilizations and then they were destroyed. And now, of course, we're trying to put those pieces back together today. Right, Billy? Yeah, the handbags are definitely uh, one of my biggest posts that I've, you know, I've made many times over and over. I repost. Yeah, what, do you, what do you think about them? I want to get your, what your thoughts too. That's a very interesting concept you came up with, the passing on of knowledge. Uh, I made a video. Tools and like sophistication and all that. Yeah. Yeah, I made a, yeah, exactly. I made a, a, a video with uh, Thomas uh, Jensen uh, out of uh, Denmark a few years back about the bags where that was just one day I was looking at um, some old NASA footage. And I was trying to just analyze this whole moon thing and the launches and everything else. 
And I saw the astronauts come out with the bags, the handbags, they were life support bags. And so I started going, wait a minute. So I've gone from, I went from the Mercury, Apollo, I kept going forward all the way to the STS missions. And no matter what mission I went to, I saw that they were coming out with these handbags that were connected to a tube, that were connected to their spacesuit. They climbed up uh, into the uh, launch tower. Like, like Laura Bacall, right? Yeah, like Laura Bacall. That's so, the image that shows an M of them I in sight. Yeah, exactly. So I started saying, maybe it's a possibility. I mean, we don't know. We're all speculating here. It's a possibility that those, these bags could be life support bags, uh, you know, adding credence to the fact that these beings were getting in ships and taking off a lot uh, or and flying around the planet as well, or maybe needing acclimation to the atmosphere or whatever. I don't know. But uh, your, your uh, theory also is very, very interesting. And it's possible that it could be a little bit of both. It could be technology combined with knowledge and wisdom. Uh, but the thing, the one thing that we do have in common is the fact that they've been found all over the entire planet. They're like, they're like a signature, right? They're like a signature of those, those uh, call them whiz, wisdom bringers, influencers mm -hmm. of the past, right? That's right. It links the whole world together and it proves that they were a global civilization. And, you know, there's no more question. You, you can't question it at this point when you find those bags literally have been found on um, little artifacts all over the world. Yeah, so it, it, it basically, it gives us the idea of, okay, so you find this megalithic precise building there's, there's one, so okay, that, so that's probably a lost civilization. And then you find the handbags. You can, you, you put both of those pieces together mm -hmm. and you get, you have a blueprint to then follow around the world and try to figure things out. Um, yeah. And I, and I want to, I just want to, I want to say that um, it's really an honor to be able to work with you on this, Billy, because you and I have such similar research um, areas that we've studied and, and, and the, the concepts and the hypothesis that we've come up with is so similar that mm -hmm. it's, it's almost uncanny, actually, when you say. Yeah, I know. I, I, I mean, it really is. It's, it's incredible, man. It's like we're kindred spirits. We've been researching along the same path, uh, even separately. And when we come together, I get confirmation from you and you get confirmation from me. So right. it's really good to interact like this because I'm like, wow. You know, so the path that I was researching, because you know, researching, it's not an easy thing. Um, a lot of people will just do a couple of Google searches, but that's not what we do. <laughs> they have no idea. We spend countless hours, man, through texts and tablets and PDF files and everything else, and you know, uh, and trying to piece together this puzzle, you know, paint a picture for people to look at. Not that it's the exact correct picture, but it's as close to the best that we can do to help you get an idea of what what really happened back then. And uh, it takes us a lot of time, hours away from family, away from friends, sacrificing, uh, you know, events and so forth and so on, to be able to write books and put this kind of information and content out, it's not something that's very easy to do. So, um, you know, I respect you, man. I, I really love your work. I, I'm just happy that I was able to meet you in this lifetime and to be able to share some wisdom with you, man. I love that. Thank you, Billy. That's beautiful. It's, it's, it's an honor to meet you in this lifetime, too. Um, and, and again, it's, it's an honor to be considered next to your book as well. Um, you're a very well-versed person who is and like you said, we both spend a considerable amount of time trying to piece all this together and review it. Sometimes you can go great amounts of time without finding another one of those little little keys that you're looking for. Then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. maybe some passage of some translation connects to another and boom, you can put all this together. And that's yeah. what this is all about. And like Billy said, we're not trying to say we have all the answers to what happened back then. I mean, the theory is based on what we've looked at, and then you decide for yourself what's real and what happened back then, because that's the most important thing of all. 
It's always just a breadcrumb trail where the individual has to be an objective observer of history at all times and try to figure out what the truth is, the truth is for themselves because we're all gonna come to slightly different understandings of what occurred back then. And I just wanna um, end out with a couple little updates here that, um, that we're, Billy and I are planning on doing um, more stuff in the future like this, if you guys like it. So please let us know if this is something you enjoy. And I just wanted to give a little update on um, what I've been working on at the end too, because I didn't get a chance to, but I just wanted to point out that, so I spent uh, about a, the last week based on some of the feedback, I ended up putting in um, subchapters in the entire book. And Billy's book was one of the inspirations behind that. I wanted to help organize the, the information a lot better. So I went through and did um, a rather large update recently. So for those interested, check that out. Um, that's, that's out now. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can try to do something with like a speaking presentation in the future um, coming up, Billy, if we can. Yeah, that'd be great. That would, that would be fantastic. We have to do that. We have to do it. We, we will. Let's get involved in one of those LA type of speaking events. Yeah. And you and I can get in front of a, um, a PowerPoint and we can really lay out all this evidence and we can we can really put this stuff together i think absolutely and i definitely love, would love to have you on my show uh that i have on dame dash studios uh, for billy carson gotta get you on the show yeah that would be awesome so um billy i just i'm gonna give closing closing thoughts and then i want to give you a couple closing thoughts but thanks so much for everyone that's that supports uh, my work and billy's work um we really work hard to try to bring these secrets back out but really we also the reason we do this is because we really care about this information. We care about the future of where humanity goes. And that's the driving um, force behind why we really try to make sure we can preserve this legacy of the past. So Billy, it's been a really great discussion with you, my friend. Absolutely, man. Same here. I appreciate it, man. You know, we're just here to uh, literally serve mankind. We're really of service. And I think that's going to create a lot of positive karma. It has created a lot of positive karma for us, which allows us to continue to do what we do because uh, to be able to go down the path that we're on, it's not an easy path. And it requires a lot of things to fall in line in your life to be able to allow us to do this kind of research and work because the, the average person just can't do it. There's a lot of things going on. We understand family, kids, work every week. Not that we don't have that stuff, but an alignment has allowed us to be able to accomplish these goals and missions to help mankind. And I really just wanna I thank the universe and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much, Billy. It's been a great discussion. Until next time, my friend. All right, man. See you later.